Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 165th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that goes to war for your wallet every single week. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. How are you doing tonight, James? Very good, sir. I had a power nap just after work, so I'm officially old. Feeling good about that. If the requirement for being old is falling asleep in the middle of the afternoon, my wife has been 70 for 10 years. <laughs> uh, and well and well slept every day of her life. Yeah, n- nope. <laughs> uh, Niagara Falls was fun. Uh, we miss you down here. I've come to every GP Toronto, but you can come the one down here. Seems fair. I, I, I heard the GP was a disaster, um, which certainly contributed to me staying away. <laughs> Uh yeah, I bumped into uh to Paul Fuedo over at MTG deals. Uh, I think one or two other people too made the, a similar comment that it was a, in their words, a disaster. They gave me an interesting stat um, that I hadn't heard before, and it was it's number of players per vendor. So this, which, which seems key, right? Yeah, yeah, which is a really good metric that I had just never really considered, but it was interesting to hear them talk about. So I guess. A like a, a healthy, reasonable GP is like 100 to 150, I think they said. Um, and this one was at like 60 to 80 players per vendor, which is tough. There's just, because it just means there's not enough chance to buy cards um, for them. And then uh, they were saying that like the one Vegas last year, the first two days, it was 250 players per vendor. Uh, I guess at one point there was an eight hour line to sell the vendors, which is pretty wild. Um, but yeah, it was, it was tough for the vendors, I guess it was a little, it was real, it was real short on players. I mean, part of that is that it's legacy and it's Easter weekend. Um, and also they had the GP segmented, uh, sectioned off, which I've never seen before where the main event and like event registration and all that was in the, the main room with all the vendors, but the actual events, like all the side events taking place were being done in separate rooms. So you didn't have players like mingling amongst the vendor tables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just stayed in that room the whole time. Yeah, one of your earlier points there is probably pretty key and something that a lot of players may not have wrapped their head around yet or you know, people listening to the cast is that most of why vendors want to be at major events is not to sell cards. Like certainly they love that, but it's to get a big influx of inventory. Uh, vendors that are running their business well already have multiple uh outbound funnels where they can unload cards whether that's overseas or via their online stores or whatever and if they're churning inventory really quickly they need that that constant influx of inventory so that they can keep turning things over and keep the profit churning so if you have not enough people showing up to dump their cards on you you've got a real problem because you've still got fixed booth costs to cover yeah that was one of the um the things that kind of struck me the most when i first started to learn about that part of the the scene was vendors don't go to gps to sell cards they go to buy cards um, for just that reason, because they're trying to fill their fill their coffers. But it was other than that, it was fun. Uh, the weather was a little rainy, but held out. Um, everyone seemed to have a good time. Caught up with Corbin, which is a, which was a lot of fun. Uh, Niagara Falls is a fun location. I think it's a it's no more convenient than some of the other locations you'll find a GPA. But it is cool to have one of the wonders of the world in your back seat. 
uh, you know, you can wander over to and check out. Yeah, I we had family stuff going on, so I didn't manage to make it down on the Saturday. But I did manage to make up for it on the Saturday afternoon when I went spent two hours kind of without family pressure in one of the bigger shops in Toronto, um, just scouring binders looking for uh, mid to long term specs, which was pretty sweet. That's fun. I uh, did a little bit of buying myself, but uh, not too much. Mostly just trying to unload. Um, our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Energy Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. All right. What is on the agenda this week, my friend? This week, we have a show in four parts, uh, and it's an interesting one, unlike all of our other shows, which aren't interesting. Segment one is our top movers, where we'll look at the cards that moved in price most this week. Segment two is our cards to watch. James and I will run through a couple cards that we think have uh, healthy futures. Segment three will be our topic of the week. We're going to talk about the announcement of the anime planeswalkers, uh, the worst things Wizards has ever done. And finally, segment four, we have <laughs> Dan Fournier on to talk about War of the Spark, which I'm very excited about. Um so let's get started here. Segment one or top movers. First card of the week, Hive Mind out of Magic 2010. Non foils, uh, eight to about 19 for a little over a double up there. This is one of the alternate win conditions in the Amulet Titan decks. Uh, you play this, you cast a pact, your opponent can't pay for that pact and they lose the game. Uh, so nifty card finally got bought out. It took a very long time to get here, uh, mostly because the deck doesn't usually play a play set of Hive Minds. They only play one, two, maybe three. Um, but I'm pretty sure that price, that new $18, $19 price is going to be close to sticky because supply is not deep on Magic 2010 cards. Yeah, it's been a while since we've seen a reprint. So I don't um, think we have, right? Did we? Just looking that up now. I don't think so. I think that's a single printing card. Yeah. Yep, it is. Yeah. The- Next on the list, we've got Verdurin Enchantress, 8th edition foils going from 30 to 60, 7th and 8th edition foils, um, more or less under constant pressure, um, lots of collectors and strange speculators going after these cards, uh, sometimes uh, from a very singular mindset, and uh, the premise here is just that it's some of the best foils of all time, and that demand is unabated for them years and years after they're printing. Yeah, I did not go digging through uh, the various content streams out there, but if I had to take a guess, it would be that someone featured Tuvasa on an EDH deck because I noticed that out of the, uh, kind of out of the blue, it showed up um, as having a couple cards that moved this week. So, and that's usually the case. All right. Next on the list, we've got further follow-on from people going after uh, Feather-related uh, cards, who's predicted to be the most important EDH commander to come out of War of the Spark. Crimson Wisps out of F- Shadowmoor, both foils and non-foils moving. I'm assuming this is the non-foils at $1.50 moving to $4? Yes. Yep. Yes. So 160% plus gains there. Um, I can't remember if Crimson Wisp has been featured in a supplemental product. I want to say no. No, it was only the, the Shadowmoor printing um and that one was also underwent a little bit of pressure a couple of years ago around the concert here era because it was used in initial builds of jeskai ascendancy 
Right. So there's a bit of a drain on foils there to begin with. Teamer Battle Rage foils were already under some modest amount of pressure because they are played in versions of Death Shadow, Grixis Death Shadow in Modern. Um, and now we have EDH Demand looking for the card. Um, uh, again, from the Feather Angle, foils going from already a, a fairly impressive number. Fate Reforged Common foils being at you know $6 to $8 was fairly impressive as is. Now being pushed up into the fifteen to twenty dollar range, I would suspect these will slink on back down to you know ten to fifteen. And I, again, a lot of these feather cards are so specific to feather, um, you know the Gris's Death Shadow usage notwithstanding, um, that the ones that are not featured anywhere else um, are definitely going to see retraces. And I wouldn't want to be too deep. Right. Yeah. This is the type of card that if you have it, I'd be happy to sell it, but I don't think it's worth trying to do much with at this point, um, just because it's not the type of card that many EDH players are going to own multiples of. Um, after Teamer Battle Rage, uh, Sliver Hive popped up. Uh, looks like Foils, I believe, were 12 to 35. Players are speculating that Slivers will be in Modern Horizons. Um, Accelerate out of Torment, also foils, a dollar and change, up to like four bucks, another feather spec. Wayfarer's Bobble out of Modern Masters 2015. Uh, foils there, about 75 cents to like 250, so about a triple up. That's uh, based on EDH play. I went and did a little digging on this because I was curious. It's actually not terribly, my first thought was modern, but it's actually not terribly played in modern. I was thinking it was like an eggs type of piece, but it's not. Um, Wayfarer. Bobble is all basically strictly EDH and looks like somebody decided to go clean out the foil inventory. Um, 250 for foils. Yeah, definitely. Was it worth paying 50 or 75 cents a copy of these, hoping to sell them at 250? No, I don't know what that goal there was, but I'm shrugging my shoulders. You can't see it. Let me just see what the buy list backing is on that version. Is this the fifth Dawn foils we're talking about? No, Modern Masters 2. 2015? 2015, yeah. Doesn't look like you have a buy list out on those from the usual suspects very easily. Mm. Um, so not the kind of thing I want to be anywhere close to. Yeah. If you got to basically my rule these days is a spec under five dollars that I don't think is going to exceed five dollars better be a buy list play. Like it basically better be arbitrage. Otherwise, I want nothing to do with it. Right. Um, following that, it looks like Mesmeric Sliver, same thing as Sliver Hive, players thinking there's Slivers and Horizons. Uh, Veilstone Amulet foils out of Future Sight, about 7 bucks up to about 25 so there was definitely some pressure on Veilstone Amulet prior to this. That's the card that whenever you cast a spell, it gives your creatures hexproof until the end of the turn. Um, I'm assuming that's Feather, because you start out by just, like, casting a spell, immediately all your guys get hexproof, and then you can do whatever you want for the rest of the turn. Yeah. Uh, next on the list, we have Pull from Eternity, non-foils, going from a dollar to three dollars. This is the Narset combo that people have been uh, testing uh, to abuse the London Mulligan rule in Modern. Some uh, suggestion that this might be a force to be reckoned with at the forthcoming Pro Tour London next week. Um, not, not convinced that's where we're headed, um, but. And and again, this is the kind of thing where unless the buy list backs you, I don't think you want to be anywhere close to deep. Yeah, uh, I'm in the same boat as you. These are such odd cards here. Uh, you sell them if you have them, but even that is going to be miserable because you're selling $3 foils. Ugh. Well, the foils are actually, you can get almost $10 
from on buy list for the foils. So that and pull that, from attorney. Oh, pull from attorney. Oh, this is one of the non foils. Sorry. Yeah. So the the foils because time spiral is so long ago. Um, the foils are actually in very short supply. So for the few, you know, the twenty or thirty people that are going to be inter- into buying pull from attorney foils, there is some buy list back in there. But for the non foils, they're still at like forty cents. So again, hard to make money. Yeah. Uh, a quarter shield foils out of scars mirrored in about a dollar to five bucks. This is a popular card in like uh, Cheerios, um, the later editions running SRAM, Artifice Master, whatever. Uh, and that popped up on Moto recently, which is where I'm guessing the demand for this came from. Uh, but a quarter shield has a couple printings actually, and I'm pretty sure at least one of them is in foil. Yeah, Scars of Meriden must be the original foil, though. Yeah, Magic uh, 2014, it came in as well. Yeah. So, fair supply there. I think that the buy list backing on the foils is only about a dollar. So, mm. unlike Pull from Eternity, you're not going to have as easy a time unloading. No. Okay, so Flesh Rither from uh, Future Sight foils from $10 to 60 that's a transmute card, right? And transmutes yes. for four. Yep. Right. So I think you pay one black black to go get a four casting card, casting cost card, put it into your hand. Uh yeah, it's three for three. We can we can look this up. It is three for four. Pay three mana, search your library for a four mana card, and put it in your hand. Yeah, I'm not I'm not aware of any specific demand for this card, so I'm not sure what four casting cost card people are deeming it necessary to go get um but the paper copies non-foils have been kind of on a slow steady rise since well for years really if you go back to like october of 2017 or something the card was 30 cents and now it's something like 50 and with a recent spike so we must have missed something on a stream somewhere hmm you know these generally don't do all that hot i gotta say they're not the most reliable the transmute cards just never seem to do it. They never they're seem to get there. They're expensive tutors, and Tolaria West obviously is the most effective um, that sees play in modern because you can transmute it if you want to to go uh, get a land that you need to combo off with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tezzeret's Gambit foils out of New Phyrexia, uh, dollar and change up to twelve dollars. Um, this is people getting excited about proliferate having come back and the rise of planeswalkers. Uh, was this not reprinted either? I thought this... Yeah, okay, this has been... Okay, so this is a new Phyrexia, Modern Masters 2015, and two Commander products. Uh, but that gives us two foils, new Phyrexia, and the second Modern Masters. So, I mean, we've got new Phyrexia foils here that move, which is the original printing. Um, Modern Masters is another another set of inventory here, though. The new Phyrexia foils are buy list backed at like 5 to $6 already. Yeah. So if people if people manage to scoop some at two, they're doing just fine. Um, but hopefully for their sake, they were in relatively shallow because you definitely only want to be in to whatever extent the buy list will take them off your hands. It's just you don't want to be onesie twosie selling stuff under ten dollars. Ideally, if you're going to sell at retail, you want to be selling twenty dollars plus so that every transaction is something that's worth your time to actually pack the envelope. Right. Um, following Tezzeret's Gambit, we've got Vanguard of Bramaz, uh, foils out of Born of the Gods. This is a dinky little thing you never paid attention to, but, uh, they're a dollar to ten dollars now because whenever you target him with a spell, you get tokens and that deck definitely wants stuff like that. Um, so 
God bless you if you can get 10 bucks for foil from Vanguard of Bramaz. I, I put together Feather the other night, um, probably about 80% complete, and I had the red 1-1 one one that has the same ability. When you target it um, under Heroic, it makes 1-1s. One yes. Um, but I did. I forgot to include Bramaz, but it makes perfect sense. Um, I think you want to go the go, have the go wide route as your backup plan in Feather, um, because you can't rely to keep feather, rely on keeping Feather on the board uh, under pressure from all of your uh, opponents. So being able to leverage the casting of multiple um, spells per turn under a young pyromancer, a monastery mentor, a vanguard of Bramaz. Um, uh, or I think it's a Crowan Crusader, if I'm not mistaken, is the red one. Um, in conjunction with Mirroring Dragon and Zada, may allow you to go off and go super wide, super quick, and force the board to have a board clear, or else you could take the game. Yeah, it seems like you're, my guess is that you're unlikely to go super wide with Feather, but that these types of cards generate a couple bodies to block and, you know, get in the way of Plague Crafter um merciless executioner those types of effects uh is going to be useful like right it's easy to find tons of spells to put in the deck you got to find something else to do with them yeah the the key is that i think you want at least a handful of double targeting cards cards that can target one of the heroic creatures and feather um there's the there's a bunch of cards from that era that allow you to basically pay their cost twice um launch the fleet was the first one that i pulled out to put in the deck where for every extra one i pay for attacking creatures i basically get to double my attacking creatures and add a one one Mm -hmm. um and there's also a bunch of ones that give like first strike or plus two plus zero or whatever and you can give it to feather and give it to one other and then you would get the bonus on both you get the card back at the end of the turn and you get the the additional tokens so I don't really see Feather as a power commander deck the way that it is likely to be built. It's more of a like high-end casual um, build for the most part. And I think it's nice to have one of those in your repertoire. Yeah, they're fun. I have a Zada deck and I enjoy it. And it's not the best deck that I have, but it's still fun to play. Yeah. All right. After that is Celestial Kirin, foils and non-foils. The non-foils, like a dollar to $13. Good luck with that. Um, no, no, reason- no, 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 Gerard's Verdict is our next card. Oh, sorry, I got these out of order. Well, I'm going to finish such Celestial Kieran because I already started talking about it. We'll come back to Gerard's Verdict. But Celestial Kieran, $1 uh Ugin's Construct is a colorless creature in War of the Spark, uncommon, uncommon, with a converted mana cost of X, uh, and it's just like an XX when you put it in the play, uh, but it's a spirit. So with Celestial Kieran... You now have a creature that you can cast at any X value to blow everything up of that mana cost, right? Because Celestial Kieran is whenever you cast a spirit spell with can uh, destroy all permanents with that spell's converted mana cost. Yeah, so the real key here is that when you do it when you do it on zero following a Kieran, you blow up all lands. So Uh, you basically get a free Armageddon. (laughs) Oh wow, yeah, that is not non land permanent. Hello, Kamigawa. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah that's the combo they, they, the the problem here is that if you're thinking this is a modern combo what is the rest of the deck that's built around you know a forecasting cost three three flyer right um but it's not inconceivable given how powerful armageddon is yeah it's weird you know i i'm not saying they could print 
Armageddon Modern. But I do think that every time we've had a card come back that people were like, wow, this is going to... Every time a card has been unbanned, they're showed up in the format. It hasn't really done all that much, with the exception of, like, maybe... Uh, what's his name? The Dredge guy. Uh, so, would Armageddon... No, Jace, Jace solidly took back up position. Well, he sees play, but not like a lot of people, myself included, expected. Sure. Um, so, would Armageddon be fair and modern? You could conceivably see it not being good enough. Um, and, and and it's two card Armageddon, right? And again, right, right. this is even worse. <laughs> and again, there's no synergies here with other things. You'd have to go look for them, but I, but I, yeah, it's not like it. It jumps off the page at you here. Yeah, so. you don't you don't want your combo engine to be a three three flyer. No, I mean if if you get there, if if this is, turns out to be playable, good job, I guess. But uh, this is definitely on the high end of risk uh, for me. I guess the 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 trade off is that if you were paying you know ten cents for these or twenty five cents because no one's ever wanted them before, uh, it's as close to safe as it gets. So like even if you're wrong, you're not out that much. Hmm. Yeah, and the, the buy list backing is the key here. So buy list is up to 390 credit. 390 credit. Wow. Yeah. So, so people want it. That worked that worked out just fine. Um and and by all means dump dump dump. Like you're not holding this thinking it's going to get there in modern. There's just, especially if the London Mulligan rule sticks, I think the, the format moves is going is moving in a completely different direction than what this silly combo represents. So you expect a hard retrace once instead of the spotlight. I pulled four Kieran out of my binder posted them at like eight bucks a piece or something would be happy to get six and just keep keep moving like this is just the kind of thing where your old boxes are just paying you dividends because of these random cards that were worth nothing that just end up covering like a, a chunk of your box so i like to do it yeah uh bandage out of 10th edition foils three thirty cents to nine dollars feather if you if you sell a foil bandage to anybody i want to know about it uh, I mean, I and I mean our listeners in general. Okay. I mean, are I you? I, I I am like partially foiling out feather, but not with any kind of gusto. Like just whatever I happen to have in foil. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not going to be going out of my way to buy a ten dollar foil bandage. Uh, yeah, that's definitely pushing it. <laughs> um, like when they were fifty cents, I can understand how anybody who was like, "Oh yeah, I'm totally building feather, and these feathers are these foils are dirt cheap," helped to push the prices up. Those people, they got in, you know, could foil out their whole deck for a couple hundred bucks or whatever. Totally fine. Now you have a nice shiny deck. But d- don't go chasing <laughs> on Water foil pulse. bandage. Yeah, yeah agreed. Uh, and speaking of which, final card of the week, Shelter, foils out of Odyssey, 70 cents to $22 because of Feather. Feather. Yeah, Shelter definitely makes the deck. All okay. Right. So that was our Your Week in Feather. Segment two are cards to watch. Uh, James, why don't you get us started? All right. So my first pick here is taking a bit of a step back from what's been going on with War of the Spark and what's likely to be going on with Modern Horizons and trying to, you know, look in some other directions that people may not be paying as much attention to right now. Um, I think it also would be uh, good for our pro traders to be encouraged to tear down less price walls which has been a, a notable trend in the discord lately where if they go after a spec and 
you know, for instance, Channel Fireball throws another 50 or 100 copies up, they they go scoop those up too, trying to fight a battle that is probably not the, the wisest to fight. Um, definitely worth making the point that, again, don't try to be the trend. Follow the trend. <laughs> yeah. If the If the trend is that the vendors have extremely deep inventory, don't take it all on because now you're the one waiting to sell it real slow. And the buy lists are not going to support five or six hundred copies of a spec that naturally would have drained over six to 12 months, but isn't going to do that in a week or two. They have been tenacious, as one would say. Yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not everybody, but you see the same like groupthink patterns develop on Reddit. You see them in other forums and discords and in investment clubs of all shapes and sizes. Um, people, people don't are, are looking for the quick flip too often and don't like to you know let things ride for their natural cycle um you gotta like get up to the big picture perspective and realize that if you're doing 50 percent a year on your mtg finance action or you're making your hobby several hundred or a few thousand dollars cheaper you're doing really really well and you should be happy um trying to you know churn 20 percent a week every week is going to turn into a a job and b um, is get, it's going to be tough to be consistent and you're going to end up with a big old box of shame especially if you haven't been doing this for very long and you're following advice blindly and not doing your own research to you know reality check other people's picks including ours this sounds uh like a segment specifically for the people who pay for the podcast more than <laughs> more than the average listener the thing is that there are like 90% plus of our listener base is not in our pro trader discords. Yeah. So, and they go off and do their own thing, you know, without any guidance um, other than what they glean from their own research. Um, this podcast plus whatever else. So we don't know, you know, they, they listen to this, they go listen to Rudy and then follow some Rudy advice as their priority. <laughs> we no, have no idea. Don't what they're listen up. to Rudy. We have, we have no, but people do, right? Like they, his, I know his, I'm just asking his, the people listening. <laughs> Um, so anyway, it's, it's a point worth making. The first thing I'm flagging this week is the demonic tutor foils from ultimate masters. Um, notable because it's not an easy buy wall to attack. This is, um, not something that's at a tipping point this week. This is something that is going to drain slowly out of the market until the next reprint, um, which, are likely to be few and far between. There there have been many printings of this card in non-foil over the years, mostly in ancillary products, um, but there are only two foils. There's the Judge foil and now the Ultimate Masters foil There and the Box Topper. So three total if you count the Box Topper separately, which I suppose you should. Um, the thing is that the Judge foil and the Box Topper are well over $100. I think Box Toppers are in the 130 140 range right now. So there's a massive gap between Pack Foils and the Box Topper that's not justified in my mind, given that they basically use the same art. So the border extensions are nice, but are they $100 nice? Probably not in the long term. Um, the buy-in price on these is going to be about 50 I think your reasonable exit down the road, say 6 to 12 months, is something like 70 for a relatively modest 40% gain. And there are definitely uh, bigger priorities if you have the time budget and attention to be for instance flipping my third pick this week which is the most obvious spec of all time um but this is from a personal play perspective there's no reason to hold off like if you want a foil demonic tutor but you don't want to spend more than a hundred dollars this is definitely your entry point uh, it's not going to get any better and 
I would guess you have at least a year or two before you have to worry about a reprint here at all. Uh, yeah. I mean, they've dragged their feet on Demonic Tutor for the most part. UMA was the most recent printing, and I don't think they're going to be rushing to do that again um, for whatever reason, right? And even they're not putting it in modern, so really the only place you have to be worried about it most likely is Commander this year. Um, so, I, you know, that's that's pushing it. So I don't think you're looking at, like you said, 50 to 70. It's not a humongous jump but it's still very solid and you'll be happy to have bought them at 50 rather than 70 yeah there's also a bonus bucks deal going on on tcg and and ebay has a uh, ebay bucks thing for some people i suppose not everybody um that's eight percent as well so everything we're talking about this week you you have a shot at eight percent off um which is always nice yeah that's a very pleasant pick up there nice little boost i think that goes till the end of the day on the 25th uh, so for some people that will be too late, but for our early access podcast listeners, you will, uh, certainly have ch- time to get in on the action if you haven't already. They have been, uh, pretty aggressive with those TCG kickback deals. They used to be yeah. fairly rare. Now they're all over the place. I think TCG, that the interpretation there is clear, right? That the eBay day, the days where eBay does it or has a coupon, um, hurt TCG sales in a major way. So they feel like they have to respond to keep business flowing. Yeah um okay my first pick this week uh i'm looking at psychosis crawler foils there are both conspiracy and mirrored and besieged um right now you can find foils of psychosis crawler in the dollar 50 to two dollar range um i like these up to probably like six or eight maybe even ten dollars uh psychosis crawler uh is currently found in about fourteen thousand different decks on eda truck most recently, you're seeing it in Divmas at Perrin, who plays well with Psychosis Crawler, but there are a bunch of commanders who you all mean, like... Per, you mean Perun? Perun. Is that what it is? Perun? <laughs> Perrin? Yes. Is it Perun? Now, now, now you're going to get lambasted in Discord for uh, six Perrin, weeks. Perrin sounds a lot better than Perun, though. Like, Perun yeah. is such a goofy word. All right. Perun. Oh. Mm. Okay. Well, James goes to check this up. 14,000 decks in the newest niv Well, I guess it's not the newest niv anymore, but the middle niv Um, Also in a bunch of other strategies. He's going to play well in a variety of decks um, with the facts that draw you a lot of cards. Um, and supply is real low. So it's, you know, it's just a kind of a simple, straightforward EDH card that's kind of gone under the radar, uh, but it is not under the radar any longer. Yeah, it's Perun. I looked it up. And then I know that <sighs> because I never get these things wrong. Perun. I hate that. There really isn't anybody, not Saffron, not LSV, not anybody in this game that isn't a professional um, presenter that does not mess up uh, a word at some point Well, in, in, in their content flow. And really, if, if the listeners were being fair, they'd probably do it themselves all day long. Oh, yeah. I mean, I challenge the number of people who would correctly pronounce Perun on the first shot his got, or should I say, who knew that it was Perun? Has got to be under a percent. Like you, you there's no have, way. Yeah, you got to have a heart for your content creators and Magic because the, you know, it's tough making a game for 25 years plus and not reusing the same words. So they tend to go pretty deep in the thesaurus, um, and that requires Magic content creators to have a fairly deep uh, vocabulary. Yeah, that, I mean, it is, I, I would personally consider myself 
uh, perhaps arrogantly with a pretty good track record on getting the word pronunciations right. But even Perun is far off the deep end. I read several Dune books. There is a lot of archaic terminology for rulers and so forth, but that never came up. So I don't know. And now all I'm right. defensive about it. So, I'm, <laughs> so now I'm I'm all over the map with a bunch of different kinds of specs this week. This is your there's your standard rare card long shot. Um, called shots in standard at the juncture where we are right now for War of the Spark are generally a very bad idea. My third pick this week is the obvious spec that you should be war chesting for, and you don't need to touch any of this other stuff, Travis's or mine until you've maxed on on the final pick which will be i think self-evident to most of you already but i did i I do occasionally get bored and go after a long shot maybe like once maybe twice a month and it's never more than two or three percent of my overall spend but i went ahead and grabbed uh, there was a streamer showdown um this afternoon where pretty much all of the magic streamers had early access to playing standard decks on magic arena um, and it was heavily featured on Twitch all afternoon, uh, I think from about noon, like, and it's still ongoing as we're recording now. And one of the cards that I saw doing a lot of work across multiple different streamers was one that kind of surprised me. It was Nisa Who Shakes the World, which is the three green green, five loyalty planeswalker Nisa um, from War of the Spark. And it has the following abilities. Whenever you tap a forest for mana, add an additional green. So it basically doubles mana production as long as the mana production is coming from forests. Plus one, put three plus one plus one counters on up to one target non-creature land you control. Untap it, it becomes an elemental creature with vigilance and haste that is still a land. Um, And that's a permanent transition. It's not till end of turn. And then minus eight, you get an emblem with lands you control have indestructible. Search your library for any number of forest cards, put them onto the battlefield, tapped, and then shuffle your library. I saw this in a Bant shell being run by Ali and uh, Antrazi. Uh, And... It was also running four copies of Karn, who I believe is running about eight or nine dollars right now on pre-order at the same exact rarity. Karn the Creator, uh, that's the four casting cost, five loyalty, activated abilities of artifacts your opponent's control can't be activated, plus one until your next turn up to one target non-creature artifact becomes an artifact creature with power and toughness equal to the converted mana cost, minus two you may choose an artifact card you own from outside the game or an exile, reveal that card and put it into your hand. So he was running four of each and doing a lot of work, and the thing that was interesting is... Uh, if a card, if a land is a forest, it adds a green when you tap it. It doesn't actually double it. So, for instance, if you tap a breeding pool for blue, you get blue-green. Mm-hmm. Which really opens things up, for instance, in EDH. Because then your, you know, your, any, your stomping grounds, your overgrown tombs or whatever can be making uh, two different colors of mana off Anissa. Um, and I think that that will, gives her some legs long-term. And... I managed to scoop these 100 copies of this in Europe for $1.50 each. And my premise here is that I'm going to be able to buy a list at $2.50 to 3 if she does, in fact, post up in a top eight, uh, consistently top eighting list at some point in her standard career where, you know, for at least a few weeks, the deck is doing well and buy lists get up into that range. Well, Nissas have had a pretty good run in standard. Um, I'm, I don't know if there's a Nissa who has gone completely unplayed i think all of them have had a pretty have had at least uh um a respectful attempt so i'm on board with that right off the bat 
Uh, a four mana walker that doubles your mana essentially is going to be popular. Not only could that make a play in standard, but that will be appealing in modern where those effects tend, or I'm sorry, EDH, where those effects tend to come at five, not four. Um, so that's, that's a good, uh, that's a good feature for this too. And I love me a good long shot. You know, I try not to tell people to take them very often. Um, but, uh, I have a stack of rowdy crews on my desk that, well, it was on my desk until I cleaned it that says I enjoy a good standard spec. Uh, is, it, is that the, the Exelon so block good. one where it became a five, five or something? It's like two and two and two red. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Four mana, three, three that you discard cards or something, and it might get turned to a five, five. Oh, yeah. I have like 20 of those stashed away somewhere in the dead, dead spec box. It's not even in the box of shame. It's in the very, very dead box. Yeah, the kindling box. So, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I don't, I don't hate it. I, it's a risk for sure, but I, I enjoy those. So, I, I'd, also, I'd also argue that the N- Nissa who shakes the world is the superior art between this and the, the alt art Japanese. This, uh, uh, art is by hmm, can't read the name it's not an artist i recognize it's by chris rallis apparently and is one of my favorite nissa arts i think actually it's quite dramatic yeah it's certainly more so than the card seems to necessitate but uh yeah the nifty looking uh, nifty looking walk nissa i did notice that um, okay, so my second card for the week is, uh, I'm on a theme here this week. Uh, this time it's Consecrated Sphinx. Um, I mean, if you've ever played EDH, you know what this card is. Um, it's in about 18,000 EDH decks right now. It's only blue. Uh, this used but, to be... <clears throat> and that's that's reported via EDH rec. We're probably talking about half a million decks. Well, right. I mean, that goes for all the cards we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so well, people, I, I think it's important to note because I, I I think that the more stats from each rec get talked about, and we're having Jason on shortly to go into this in depth. But <laughs> the, the the more the more that we and others quote um, that number from each rec without the context, the more people just start thinking like that's how many decks. And it's I think it's more useful uh, for its the relative values than the absolutes because. Whatever people are reporting is only a tiny fraction of what's out there. Like, I, I don't have my EDH decks posted anywhere, and I own eight. By the way, did you read his article today? Uh, I haven't yet, because I was it, sleeping on the couch. It could not have been... We could not have been called out harder if he had put our names in that article. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's like, some people just rattle off the EDH rec number, keep on moving, and use that as a sole point. And I'm like, uh, James and I do that every week on the cast. And also, every time I write an article, every Monday, I do that. So, I hear you, Jason. I hear you. I see your words. J- Jason has some very valid points that are worth considering that we're going to have him on to discuss. I suspect when we have that conversation... The end result will be that he is understating the value of those raw numbers. Now, uh, if he, now if he if he knows something that we don't about how those numbers were corrupted at one point, because EDH Rec, keep in mind, did switch over their data sources at some point, and I had a question at the time about whether or not that meant that there was going to be some inconsistency in the representation of the absolute numbers. Um, meaning the de- number of decks reported. Like, for instance, think about it this way. If you're gathering uh, deck data from, say, four sites for five years, and then you stop three of those sites, and you're only gathering data from one site after that, then your data profile is going to shift dramatically, right? Because the if so- a lot of the sources are missing, then your raw totals are going to fall off heavily. You follow? Right. 
Yeah, yeah. So, of course. so, so if you were getting like ten thousand decks a month from four sources, and you cut two of those off, you're only going to get be getting five thousand decks a month. So, any cards that are that are released after that date, then potentially fall out of sync in terms of your ability to compare. And so, I think that might be why some of why Jason is saying look at the you know of the decks that could play this card. Um, pay attention to what percentage of the reported decks make use of the card because that will signal um, a true stable. And all of that, you know, neither of us would disagree with. But Boy. We, need, <clears throat> we do need him for him to cons- confirm my concerns because if that's true, then he then it's entirely possible he's right because comparing the raw numbers for a card from, say, five years ago to a card today, if the data sources have fallen off, not just switched, but fallen off, uh, could be a real issue. You are uh, you are taking up his entire podcast appearance here. Preempting. <laughs> um, yes, I, I agree that you need to have... Um, you, the data is very good, but you have to understand that often, depending on what you're citing, in this case, like EDH rack numbers, it is, it is a data point, but it is only a data point and it is useful for what it is, but you can't expect that to be everything um you have to understand the context in which that data matters so yeah and, this, and jason's gonna run through when he comes on like five or ten other ways to use the site to do some good data mining so it should be awesome right okay so anyways uh consecrated sphinx one of the best blue cards in edh of all time i'm with right you. very very highly rated um foils in uh, I put MMBS, but that's wrong. Foils from the reprint of Consecrated Sphinx, which was in IMA, uh, are currently about twenty twenty-two dollars. Um, so, and there's a couple of them. There's not a ton, but they're about twenty-two dollars for foil IMA copies. Mirrored and Besieged copies, you will find them at thirty, but you will only find at least on TCG Player two or three. Then they ramp up to $38 and $40 pretty fast. So basically, foil IMA copies of Consecrated Sphinx are $22. Foil MBS copies are $40. Um, and there's not that much inventory regardless. So I'm thinking we're going to see Consecrated Sphinx, uh, especially the, the IMA copies, up towards $40, $45, $50 um, before the end of this year. It's just such a powerful blue card. You're going to put every blue deck considers playing consecrated sphinx and some commanders demand it uh just another ultra solid edh staple that's kind of getting ready to move here's the other thing about consecrated sphinx um first of all i believe everything you just said um <clears throat> it's the and because we got it in iconic masters it's probably safe for a couple of years if they try to juice the commander decks this fall which is kind of the rumor um that they're going to Gavin Verhey, I think, made some comments earlier this year that suggested there's going to be significantly better EV in the Commander decks uh, for 2019. Um, So that means things like Consecrated Sphinx that might normally be kind of tough to fit into the set will be back on the table. Um, But again, probably not in foil. Unless, of course, that's part of what they're doing. Um, We don't know for a fact there won't be foils this year. And based on what we've seen recently, anything is possible. However... You can also flag the Masterpiece series Amonkhet Invocation version of Consecrated Sphinx, which we are, I think, both in agreement uh, is not something we would like to own. But there's only nine listings left on TCG, and they run from 60 to to $100. That is a steep curve. Oh, is so, there that few? 
and you can get the 8% off with either eBay or TCG this week. So if you could scoop a copy under 60 and then look to out it, say, within the year, I'd say 90, you'd be in real solid position. Yeah, I did notice the price on those. That is tempting. Um, you know, I didn't do the deep dive on them. I think I, for what it's worth, I, I would own the invocations. They are an amusing note in magic's history i don't think they're the coolest looking but they're fascinating to have um which alone is probably worth it um so i was targeting the the ima copies here but i think you're right that the invocations are probably worth a glance at 60 yeah all right so what is your dumb as a rock pick this week i mean you have to be dumb (laughs) as a rock to not get it dumber than quoting edh rec stats every week um definitely would be mythic edition three and it's the only time I have, in all of 2019, I have put confidence level 10 on this spreadsheet. Um, we have little Edition- alarms going off on Excel right now. Yeah. Mythic Edition 3 is... A lot has happened since the last time we podcasted. It feels like it's been weeks since we found out about this, but it's actually been less than a week. <laughs> um, Mythic Edition War of the Spark is the best of the three. Um, and I think that when evaluating it beyond the obvious, um, the inclusion of, you know, alt art masterpiece versions of Jace the Mind Sculptor and Ugin the Spirit Garden, Spirit Dragon, um, <laughs> Ugin the Olive Garden, Ugin the Spirit Garden, Spirit Dragon, that one. Um, beyond that, you know, the, the obvious inclusion of two amazing top tier planeswalkers, you have a bunch of good to very good planeswalkers so for instance gideon blackblade is looking like he's going to be a standard powerhouse tezzeret the seeker is an all-time include in uh commander decks garrick apex predator is similar and people were disappointed that he didn't show up for the war so it's nice to see him included there nickel bolus dragon god the art for this uh card uh say was it the art for this version no, it wasn't this version. The art for the pack version, I think, for when for thirty th- is above thirty thousand dollars on eBay as we speak. Um, and Whew. I think the, the Uganard is up there as well. Yeah, I think as the Uganard is Chris Ron, um, and both the Bolas, which I think was Noah Bradley, but got to double check. Um, anyway, both of them were over thirty k with lots of bidders. Um, and then Nahiri the Harbinger, which is a uh, modern playable planeswalker on occasion. And then Sarkin Unbroken is kind of like odd duck out. That's probably going to be the one that's like hard to get above 20 or $30. But all the rest of this is even better than Mythic Edition 1. They made a very specific point during the announcement last week of saying that there are only 12,000 copies printed. And that is a very specific pivot and response to what happened with Mythic Edition 2, where the rumors that were spreading um, about how much was printed based on reading the HTML code on eBay um, led people to believe that Wizards was trying to obfuscate how much they had printed and trying to make the set look like it was selling out faster than it actually was. So in this case, they kind of kicked out the doorstop on the only reason people would have like potentially hesitated in going deep on this um, and just said, here, there's 12,000. So do your own math. You can buy two per household. That 6,000 people will successfully purchase this product maximum. In reality, anybody that sets up two or three or four accounts or, you know, some of the bigger vendors may put some bot like automated bots to use to try to scoop 20 or 30 copies. 
um, is going to result in maybe four to 5,000 successful purchases total globally. And the thing is that this set is, you know, you can get it for about 300. I think that if you're importing it overseas, you might be looking closer to 375 to 450, depending on how brutal your customs and shipping fees are. Um, but this set is so good that that doesn't matter. With Mythic Edition 1, they were being distributed at specific GPs, for the most part, plus the one-day sellout um, on the Hasbro site. So it was really about, is there a GP close enough to me where either me or somebody I know, I know is going that can pick up some sets for me? And that played out in a very specific way that won't be repeated. The second one had all the problems with being distributed on eBay and ended up being a mediocre spec for most people where me telling everybody to not go deep. I actually had a concession um, in private chat from a QS writer that was debating it with me at the time saying, you were right about <laughs> about Mythic Edition 2. Because <laughs> uh, I had been arguing that if you were war chest, that you may not be able to get out of Mythic Edition 2 fast enough to rebuild your war chest for Mythic Edition 3. And if that's a concern for you, just wait and hold on for something else. At the time, there was a whole bunch of good specs to go after. In the interim, leading up to War of the Spark, all the Planeswalker specs were kind of between you and your Mythic Edition 3 buildup. And, you know, there was a lot of things to get in and out of quickly that I, I don't think... I think a lot of people got caught holding it in Mythic Edition 2. I've seen a bunch of people trying to sell their Mythic Edition 2 this week, trying to turn that money over into, and redirect it to Mythic Edition 3. And that's really all you need to know. Um, I did manage to actually out my only copy, because I only bought one, um, to Europe uh, this morning for quite a nice profit. Um, but... It's still not going to be anywhere near what I think Mythic Edition 3 will end up going for, say, six months out. I've got a target on these of six to $800 um, when all is said and done. And that means that if it's going to get that high, then somebody in Japan or Poland or whatever actually is motivated to go ahead and try to mash buttons with the rest of us. Because with Mythic Edition 2, it wasn't going to get high enough to justify that necessarily. And that's why there's actually a decent market for Mythic Edition 2 in Europe, because a lot of people didn't push the button and import. Um, so now, you know, whatever late minor amount of latent demand there is, um, is facing a really, really low supply. But with this, I think you're going to see it sell out. I think it could sell out in 10 minutes. If it's not 10 minutes, it's an hour. And if it's not an hour, it's a day. Anything beyond that will very much surprise me. Uh, I mean, there's not a, lot, not a lot to say here that you haven't already said. I'm pretty much in agreement on all of it. It's definitely positioned really well. Having the cards that matter is huge. Um, and even if Mythic Edition 2, Master's Edition 2, ends up being roughly as possible popular as the first one that initial hype on this one is going to do so much to keep those prices up um and two is going to languish just because it doesn't feel as popular um even if those cards were say played more uh so while two was a big miss i think that three will be very popular um and anyway, we're getting that that alone you can already tell from the the sense you get from people on this one is much more exciting than the last one, but uh, I'm on board. Uh, I think it's uh, definitely going to be a great pickup if you can uh, if you can get there. Yeah, I think it's May first, May third. Better double check that. I don't want to give people the wrong information because you definitely need to be on time for this one. Yeah, I have. To, I was just thinking that I need to look that up because uh, I have to make sure I'm available for that. 
Uh, let me just find it in the article. It is May 1st at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Hasbro's eBay store. Limit of two per person. And once it's gone, it's gone. So, spec of the year, I think most people are going to have trouble even getting their allotment of two. If you can get that much, awesome. If you manage to convince friends or family members, uh, it's definitely worth bribing them. You know, no matter what people tell you about um, that being ethically dubious, uh, let me cut to the chase. They're just wrong. If you want to cut your brother or sister in who doesn't really is a muggle and doesn't play magic and say, hey, I'll give you 50 or 100 bucks to order this thing for me, that is completely your prerogative. Because I guarantee you, whatever players don't take that action, the vendors will fill in the blank. And if you think vendors having less competition is going to drive the price of Mythic Edition 3 down over time, I assure you, you are incorrect. Uh, yeah, I can't even really imagine what the the take would be that having paying somebody to pick these up for you is unethical. If you lied through your teeth about it, that would be unethical. But like uh, offering somebody money to buy to pick these up for you so you can get more than two copies is, I guess, because Wizards is saying a limit of two per player person. Mm. If people, someone wants to debate that, we can, but not here. Yeah, people tend to like fixate on the limit two per household thing. It's it's really the age old scalpers debate, right? Like there's there's plenty of philosophical ground to cover, but it's not new. No. Um. All right. So, a lot of good picks this week. Uh, we picked up some cool EDH cards for you, and also identified somewhere for you to spend twenty thousand dollars. Yep. Uh, if you could. Let's let's, uh, let's hit segment three. Our topic of the week. Um, Wizards of the Coast hates you, me, and all of us, and has felt that we should suffer, and they have done so by printing anime planeswalkers. Um, so, <laughs> go ahead. If, I want to. I want to hear this whole rant. I rant enough that I, I'm going to give you the soapbox for this one. Go for it. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't. I don't really need a soapbox. I don't. Don't care for anime, and I don't care for people who like anime even less. Uh, for the most part, that's very um, judgy. It is. I, it is. It's. 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 You know how there are some things that the fan base ruins. This is one of them. Uh, Warhammer is another one. Warhammer is a really cool idea until you meet people that play Warhammer and you're like, never mind. Uh, I'm obviously casting an extraordinarily wide blanket here, and it's yeah. Know, it's not. It's not. It doesn't. All right. So, all. so let's, let's get to the heart of this because I feel like you had an anime trauma in your youth, <laughs> like. No, Did, no, no. Are, 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 are there animes that are beloved to you? No, no. I've only ever watched one. It was uh, you're gonna you're gonna read into this more than you need to. But it was uh, Full Metal Alchemist. Uh, okay, we watched like which version the t- the show or the movie? <laughs> the show. And actually, what happened is we watched. I think it had 53 episodes. Uh, my college, my two college roommates and I watched 52 of them. And then I had the, at, we finished the 52nd episode and it was like 6 55 PM. I'm like, all right, I gotta go to do my, to my shift at work at seven o'clock. I'll be back at midnight. We'll watch the last episode. Uh, I came back and they had already watched it. Um, and to this day, I've never seen the last episode of that anime, but I didn't really care for it for anime much beforehand i could get into you know i don't i think the writing tends to be bad uh final fantasy is another series that i think is crap and final fantasy 7 is a piece of garbage with the worst dialogue i've ever seen in a video game um but is i've alienated a lot of people at this point that's (laughs) that's fine that's fine Uh, all right so like but what about like masterpieces like princess mononoke 
like, uh, so, award-winning movies. I mean, I, I liked Totoro. My my parents bought Totoro for her when I was younger, when she was young, and I was a little older. But I saw, and it, that was good. Totoro was good. Um, and I, I haven't seen all of Studio Ghibli stuff. And I will even go so far as to admit that I watched Your Name in the theaters. Um, because I was listening to NPR and they were talking about this one movie that had like taken over Asia and it was your name. And I was like, well, very curious what movie would have sold like two billion tickets in Asia type of thing. So, uh, shamefully brought my wife and we, uh, we, we all liked it. We really did. But I don't know. It's, it's just, it, people get so obsessive and weird about anime in general that is just like whatever good stuff is in there is just ruined by the the bands i mean i i would argue that you can find that any given fan base of sufficient size will be subject to the same bell curves as the rest of society and that you probably no matter what you love if you talk to enough people that love it they you probably will find people you don't love um Uh I, oh, I no question. I, I watch I've watched enough anime over the years to certainly agree that there is a preponderance of mediocre content. Um but there are so many um you know moments of brilliance that ha- that stand out over the, say the last 20 years in the genre. The genre is also very diverse. It's ve- it's got all sorts of sub uh subgenres and subcultures associated with it. It is a very expansive cultural space. So I think it's a bit reductionist to go after it quite that hard. But that's not really the point here, and I think, <laughs> and I think that the the point you make as someone who doesn't, where this particular magic product does not resonate with you, isn't is a good one because this is a very specific marketing decision by wizards. Um, this kind of thing is very popular in Japan. I am led to under understand, um, you know, special editions uh, for the market. Uh, especially that lean into the culture, uh, cultural of uh, uh, signposts of the market are likely to do well there. But this is, you know, an unprecedented situation. You and I had wind that something was going on with the Japanese boxes like 10 days ago or something. I first approached you on it and said, hey, this is weird. I usually go after Russian boxes um and not having any more luck finding them in the market but it looks like there's going to be an influx of japanese boxes specifically and there was discussion and debate as to whether this was you know i said to you like maybe alt art and you were like no like they can't do that because that's like then people won't be able to get access to it and that's going to be a feel bad and then we ended up in the uh pro trader discord forums almost convincing ourselves that it was just arena codes because they did an arena codes test with Dominaria in Australia where you could get uh, specific arena codes that were used for market testing. And we thought maybe that's just all it is. Like there's going to be some cool arena codes in the Japanese boxes to test arena marketing efforts in that market. But now lo and behold, no, they gave us anime art versions of all 36 planeswalkers and the deal here is that they appear at a 50 50 ratio so first of all in war of the spark every pack is guaranteed a planeswalker in the same way that dominaria had a guaranteed legendary and if you're buying a japanese box or pack then you have a 50 50 shot of that planeswalker being the alt art version which are done by if you are attuned to the anime um uh culture in asia 
many recognizable names. Like some of the best artists, most recognized, most sought after artists in the sphere are here, including um, the artist who is famous for being involved in the Final Fantasy franchise um, that did the Liliana Dreadhorde General uh, alt art here. That's uh, Amano. That card in foil is likely to be a bonkers amount of money. Well, uh, I you know, uh, well, I am very clearly not the the target market for this product. I respect that there are going to be a lot of people that want it. It's going to be challenging to acquire it um, because it's half as many. Half of the Planeswalkers will be this anime style. And you and I were chatting before that we, you know, we expect Japanese to, well, a fairly high in the rank of language printings. Like English is number one. Chinese is probably two. Japanese likely three. Um, you know, the total percentage of Japanese boxes on the market of all given magic boxes in a set is probably, what, like 20%, maybe, maybe that high. Um, so you've got a set that is printed much lower rate than the other than like english and chinese probably uh and then half as many of those are these planeswalkers these all are they're going to be exceedingly rare and that that has to feed the entire country exceedingly rare and people who who enjoy this type of stuff um well you've seen the pictures of the figurine collections uh there is no amount of money that um rabid anime fans won't pay for stuff like this so Aside, even even if they double the Japanese print run, the supply is still going to be very rare on a global scale, and people are fanatical about this. Um, and they got some very talented names, and some of the art is genuinely fascinating. Uh, do you, do so, you like Do you like the Karn? Um, I don't. I don't have them all up in front of me. Let Let me give it to you. So I'm hearing a lot of conflicting information. Uh, about what's going to happen with the distribution of these boxes. Clearly, the distribution pattern uh, I flagged a couple weeks ago that there was going to be Japanese in the distribution chain in North America um, indicates a higher print run than normal. Like, I think they have anticipated that they couldn't just go with whatever the normal ratio is for Japanese to English print run. So I think it is boosted. But let's say it's boosted 25% or something. Um that still may not meet global demand. And that could end up with a very strange scenario where Japanese boxes specifically are selling at a significant premium versus all of the others for during its in-print life cycle. So if you know your average street price on a box at an LGS is 100 to 120 in North America and online is like more like 80 to 100 uh, or 85 to 100, um, there's a good chance that these Japanese boxes are minimum 120 to 150 US and that they could get as high as two to 300, depending on just how hard the hype cycle runs on this. Um, we were trying to set up a group buy for MDG Price Pro Traders last week and had a number of sources lined up, but they weren't distributor sources. They were further down the line. So they seem to think, they had been told, yes, there will definitely be Japanese inventory available, but didn't have fixed inventory numbers. And so now the whole project is in question because once this news hit and everybody knew it was going to be a thing, um, you know, we had money in hand ready to spend. But the people that were supposed to source us with these boxes were like, well, now my distributor saying it's so popular, they don't know how many I'm going to get. 
So who knows how much of the latent demand is actually going to get addressed and how much it will be snapped up by big vendors that have strong relationships with distributors where they're willing to take on pallets of this. Like guaranteed, you'll see a Rudy unboxing on stream where he rolls out a pallet of this stuff cackling, right? Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I refuse to watch any of his videos, but it does seem like something he would do. Yeah. I mean, there are there's alt art Karn here that looks really fantastic. Alt okay. art Ugin, Gideon right, Blackblade. Right. Here we go. You ready? Yeah. I'm gonna give you all 36. Karn's fine. It, Karn is <laughs> not Karn is honestly not all 36. Let's not Karn, do that. Karn's Just pick one out, of the pick out your top five. All right, I'm gonna pick out a couple good ones, and a couple terrible ones. Karn's solid because he doesn't look like anime. Uh, Ugin is also pretty good. Again, doesn't look too anime. Gideon's awful. He embarrasses me. Uh, same with the light wielder guy. This black one. So I will say as a side note that with these alternate arts, I have no idea who any of these characters are. Like I'm looking at two of the blue planeswalkers and I think one of them is Narset, but I don't recognize the other one. They're so removed from their normal setup. I also don't know who this three mana black planeswalker is. It just appears to be a pile of ink. Davriel. That's right. The new shadow mage, but it does look kind of cool. Obnixilis is fine. Uh, Most of the green ones, especially Nyssa and Nyssa and... Wait, what's the, what's the one with the bow? Vivian? Our terrible chibi garbage. Uh, Nickel Bulls is fine. The Tamiyo is a cool effect. I like the Tamiyo style. Angrath is awesome looking. It's a shame they put that on Angrath. Uh, but Karn is definitely, yeah, Karn is definitely one of the best ones on here. Um, but mostly I was, actually, I was actually disappointed with the Teferi because it's way too middle of the road. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that. He's Tefer- just sort of standing there. The Teferi is kind of uninspired. The Ashiok, um, is, I, I thought it was well done. The the technical competence behind the Sarkin is quite good, although I think the framing uh, doesn't do the, the full art justice. There's a lot of like interesting like palette blending going on in that particular piece of art. The um, the dynamic motion on the Domri is pretty cool. Um, the bottom line here, though, is that if you take the math on Jap- percentage of bo- total boxes that are Japanese, 50-50 on your chances of get- pulling one of these. So basically you get 18 per box. And then add in the foil multipliers. Somebody ran the math for us and said that it was like a- you would have to open f- like thousands, <laughs> low sing- single digit thousands of boxes to try to complete a full set. Which means that no one's going to be doing that by box openings. You would open your box, get your 18 non-foils, and decide whether you wanted to complete the set. If you're going to complete the set beyond your box, you've got to buy another box, which would give you some, like, is going to have a lot of overlap. So it might take a few boxes to try to get a full non-foil set. And I think Ed, uh, your former comrade on Cartel, was uh, had a, like, a hook out there offering full sets for 300 apiece. So that's already pretty pricey, and that was non-foil. So what's mm-hmm. a foil set going to go for? That's pricey. Uh, I mean, I, I would imagine that any given one of these uh, in foil, I mean, he wants 300 for a set, which means he's looking at 75 per card. So, I mean, we know that these times they have a soft cap in like the 200-ish range. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see, yeah, uh, like a default $200 for foils of most of these with the, it, with the good plant walkers or the good art being exceptionally high. Like Karn is a good combination 
So he might be nuts. Ugin might be nuts. Some of the lesser popular ones. I think there might be an Arlen Cord in here. I can't tell looking at these stupid ass things. Um, those will probably go a little lower. But And really, even some of the... If you have like a breakout one, it could be as high as 400 I mean, 300 a set for 36 is $8 each. But keep in mind that there's a, 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 an array of uncommon, rare, and mythic here. So that also complica- complicates people's instincts because they're used to thinking of Planeswalkers as mythics. If these had, if this had been 36 mythics in a set or something, this would have just been absolutely bonkers. So one of the reasons they could do this at all is because there's a variety of rarities, right? Like in a set where all of the Planeswalkers were mythic, this wouldn't have worked. This... The, it would have just been literally like so impossible to ever track down the full set. Um, but because you're getting guaranteed Planeswalker per pack, it opened up this interesting, hey, what if we tried this? Um, so I'm very curious to see how this plays out. I want to see if, you know, if the market settles into the like 120, 150 zone I'm imagining or whether the hype cycle, like it's possible we are underestimating and that they did as well that the the Venn diagram of anime fans and magic fans uh, both in and outside of Japan is large enough that this may end up being a very short supply item. I, I suggest that anybody who has contacts in Japan, you know, anybody over there, reach out and get a pre-order in because you can still pre-order through Harayuya for domestic for under 120 US shipped. And I think that that is a auto buy. Like I'm I'm reaching out to everybody I know over there to try to get like cases locked down because I think paying a 10 or $20 premium on these boxes versus your usual market um, is a slam dunk. Keep in mind war of the spark was already a great set. So on the 18 planeswalkers you get that aren't in anime form, <laughs> you still have long-term upside and the potential to get some very important foils. You can still get a foil nickel bolus dragon God in Japanese, which is already going to be an important card. Well, you know, what's actually going to be funny here is that we're going to end up with, you know, these Japanese planeswalkers floating around. Uh, I think it's Samet, by the way. Samet is the worst one um, floating around on the market at a zillion dollars. But people are going to go nuts cracking these boxes. And there's going to be a lot of War of the Spark in Japanese that isn't these cards out there. And uh, it's all going to be close to worthless because people don't like Japanese EDH cards for the most part. It's fine if it's like a doubling season, right? Like a staple. Um, But no one is going to play. People don't like these types of Japanese cards in their decks. They they, they sell for less. And there's going to be a lot of it on the market now. A lot of it all over the world as people scramble to get these boxes and crack it. And there's more Japanese than there usually are. Which will provide some weird wrinkles in the um, supply because now there's going to be way more Japanese relative to English. Those prices are going to be crazy low, which could present some opportunities for us down the road. Like what if, for instance, uh, non-alternate art Japanese Karns drop to like 80 cents? Well, the English ones are like four bucks. Uh, because there's just so many of them out there and nobody really wants them or Ugin's might get dirt cheap. So there might be a chance to snag some of these, um, you know, because they're just kind of the remnants that people don't want and then kind of well, let that well, ride up. And what if, in an extreme case, the supply in Japan is so pressured for export, which normally doesn't happen a lot because the vendors in Japan can't, under their agreement with Wizards, uh, sell online directly. 
So, for instance, you can't order boxes from Harry and ship them to the U.S., even if you're willing to pay customs and shipping. You can't do it. Um, so you have to get it from the secondary market. Um, and a lot of them come from, like, uh, the Japanese boxes are basically, like, judges that bring them back and, uh, you know, smaller vendors that sell them kind of under the, under the table online under pseudonyms and whatever. But what if this set is so pressured in Japan that J- Japanese standard prices for War of the Spark spike because you just can't get cards? Like, what if too much of the product leaves the country and the standard player base is is looking at ridiculous prices for Japanese Karn, whether or not it's in anime? Because Karn is a $12, you know, an 8 to $12 rare because it's a four of and a standard deck, like just for instance, if that happens. And in Japan, it spikes to like 15 to 20 because there's just no, there's no inventory. Like shops can't reorder because all the Japanese distributors have been, uh, ended up dumping inventory overseas. Well, I, I don't know. That would be, that'd be odd. I know that Japanese foils actually command a premium in Japan. Um, like they stopped sending them overseas when I was over there and I was picking up Kansatark here, which was in standard at the time. Um, Japanese foil monastery mentors were like 50 bucks. They were more expensive in Japan than they were in America. Um, so that the market already seems to have sort of like occasionally priced that in that they recognize those are very valuable. And what ends up happening is their premium staples cost a fortune, like the Japanese foil, you know, monastery mentor, whatever, or swift spear, but then everything else is dirt cheap. Because, again, people want one or two cards out of the box and the rest of it, like, no one other than Japanese players wants. So, it's kind of funny. You might end up with a bunch of these boxes floating overseas, getting cracked, getting traded into vendors who then drag it back over to Japan and sell it back to the Japanese players because they have mountains of it. And the only people that would want it are Japanese players. This could be the, the really, this could be the first time that you see actual like concerted buy list efforts from vendors for Japanese cards. Generally, they don't really post that. Like it's not a thing they do, but I could see how to year like 95 MTG making a which one in the same, right? Making a point to buy Japanese cards that people are going to have, but they're not going to want anymore just so they can bring it back for that player base. I don't know. It's the, all, all fascinating. Uh, I, I'm really surprised. I, Wizards I put, is doing this. I put so. some question marks around some of that analysis. So I'm not, I'm not sure I fully explained my point. Well, I'm saying that Japanese players won't be able to get their standard cards at their local shop because their local shop's normal inventory is going to get cut off at the knees. So right. it, it has nothing to do with like exporting Japanese foils or whatever. I'm just saying that I, I, it's possible that the boxes are going to get drained for export at a much higher rate than normal and that therefore War of the Spark might be a spec in Japan. Um, like for instance, to export, like I agree that Exporting cards via 95 slash Hyrule into Japan may end up a thing here, but not because they're going to be scooping Japanese cards from English people, because I actually don't, I think it's going to be so hard to get here. And most vendors are going to be, other than the ones with contacts in Japan, which is relatively few of them, but um, are going you, to be loath to take on Japanese copies of anything. Do, so, you, do, you, do you know who the largest market for those Japanese foil planeswalkers is going to be? Japanese people. Like, they're going to be the most popular in that country. So I actually don't think you're going to have an, a pronounced issue with the supply leaving the country because this player base there will be so ravenous for it, they will outbid other locations. 
Like, they might be able to sell those to Japanese players, those boxes, at, like, 150 bucks a piece. It ends up... That's possible. It, it, that's true. It, it depends who ends up being the high bidder, right? Like, if Star City comes to the table and says, we need an extra 2,000 boxes and approaches a Japanese distributor directly, um, that might undercut a bunch of small store access in Japan. It probably doesn't change anything for Haruyuya because they've, the biggest stores in Japan already have strong distribution um, relationships themselves and move a lot of products. So they're going to get their allocation for sure. But I think that, you know, the same kind of thing, like, for instance, the Gideon Spellbook was announced and the way that they're distributing it is based on the new rankings for stores. And so a bunch of smaller stores are going to get left with zero or very low allocations later this summer. Mm -hmm. Um, The same kind of like thing could happen in Japan where smaller stores in Japan end up with reduced access. So if they would normally get in 30 cases or something, they might only get they might get their initial allocation of like 12 to 15 or whatever. And when they go to restock, they might find that for months they can't because people have standing orders with the distributor to export it. Yeah, I, I guess I, my my suspicion is that the Japanese market will pay high enough prices that it will not uh, – not enough will leave the country that it's impactful. That's my thesis here. Well, and, and, and if that ends up being true, then it just – then the price of boxes, you know, my prediction of 120 to 150 dollar boxes might end up being too low. Maybe they will be 200 plus in North America if enough of it doesn't enter the supply chain here. Because while I fully agree that people that speak the language are going to be the primary market, um, it's possible Wizards has underestimated how much they needed to tweak the availability of Japanese boxes in the supply chain in North America, and that it ends up being if it's even 50 percent more popular than they thought it might be, then you know, boxes are going to be very expensive on eBay. So I'm very well, I'm very curious to see how that plays out in the next three weeks. That raises uh, kind of, uh, you know, it segues into another area here, is that Wizards has never really done anything like this before, like an in-standard normal box release that has a specific language feature, which we haven't seen elsewhere, is, is unheard of, is unparalleled. It's only one language. It's so odd. In fact... Even when we kind of heard whispers about it, I was like, "This seems like nonsense." Like, yeah, we right? thought, like I'm not, I'm yeah, not we, saying this wouldn't ha- happen, but we we came up with the idea and almost immediately discounted it as like that's pretty extreme. Like yeah, I was thinking, I, mean, I, I thought maybe a few alt arts or something in the set. I did not think they would do all thirty six. Yeah, my reaction was wizard. I'm never saying no to wizards like not doing something, but it just seemed like such a departure from what they normally do that it was like, I couldn't wrap my head around it. Um, We really don't know how this is going to play out, but I think you're kind of right. Neither does Wizards. Wizards is gambling. They have real no great precedent here and uh, never underestimate the amount of money a weeb will spend on their anime. Yep. And their figures. Some of those some of those figures are like what hundreds? Hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's a lot of monies. Alright. We've talked all that to death. Um good luck in attempting to acquire your mythic editions and Japanese boxes of War of the Spark, folks. Uh, let's move on to our biggest segment. War of the Spark set review. Let's do this. Alrighty, we are moving on over to segment four. Going to spend a solid hour probably here with our special guest of the evening, Daniel Fournier. Welcome to MTG Fast Finance as we go over the entirety of the War of the Spark. 
set release, looking at all the best cards for Standard, for Modern, for EDH Commander. Uh, welcome, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Excited to we go are, over some uh, fun cards. We are excited to have you here. I couldn't have picked somebody that I wanted more to join us for this. <laughs> Thank you. I feel we are aligned politically, which makes this exciting. <laughs> Yeah, for people who aren't familiar with Daniel, uh, he's a, a Toronto local um, who has shut down Weak Logic from my side of the buying table at the face-to-face -face Toronto location on at least a few occasions. <laughs> so when we were when we were thinking about which uh, Magic Pro to invite on the cast, certainly top of my list: a sharp mind, a uh, four-time GP top eight competitor, two-time SCG Open uh, winner competitor. Top eight? Uh, top eight. Top I made eight, it to the finals right. once, but I'm really bad at that last round of tournaments. It's <laughs> a surreal problem as, for me. As everybody but the winner tends to be. <laughs> but you did make it, uh, I think, second in the SCG Invitational. I remember watching that uh, with excitement. excitement <laughs> I think one I've, day. Se I've seen the video of me losing the finals over and over and over again. <laughs> it's in like the SCG Best of or whatever. So every weekend I get to see myself losing the finals again. Aww. It's Awesome. Taking a toll I, on my I, mental health, let me tell you. <laughs> I would imagine that that's why Sullivan continues to do commentary for SCG, because if he wasn't, he would have had to see himself losing that burn match over and over <laughs> and over again. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I, li I like the fact you, you come at this from a lot of angles. You've, you've done some judging. You've been behind the counter at face-to-face. -face, you're writing for face-to-face -face now. And you're, what's the name of your most recent series for them? Um... I don't actually remember the name I came up with it, but we were—I was just doing a like a pretty cynical card reviews, basically. Yeah, that, that was really <laughs> what a look caught at my the spoilers. Oh, reality yeah. check—that's what I called it. Yes, Fournier's full of it. Yeah, <laughs> alternate <laughs> that, that title works, for all that of works my too. work. <laughs> but yeah, reality check was really what caught our attention um, because that's exactly what we're looking for when we're bringing a pro on. Um, you know, because we tend to focus on the finance side and by no means are we either of us top tier players, um, I think it's always important to, as we're going through the rares and mythics in a set and trying to figure out what's good now, what might be good later um, to get the, you know, spike side uh, of things. So we're going to dive right in here. Um, so I think the, the first format we usually cover um, in our set reviews is standard. Um, one of the, certainly the hardest format these days to speculate effectively on, um, gone are the days where standard drove most of MTG finance. Um, these days it's much more about, you know, premium products, commander, and the occasional modern spike when some new archetype, uh, briefly flares up in a top eight somewhere. Um, but for standard, it's been really tough because one of the things I've noticed over the last couple of years, um, as the design philosophy at Wizards has evolved, has been the um, the downgrading of the uh, or the shifting of the necessary power cards for the standard format from mythic into rare, um, and in some cases down into uncommon or even into common. So we have like there's been some curation of the cost of standard decks, which I think flows out from you know cons of Tarkir era like. Um, it, the the fall season where we had Jace Friends Prodigy, blue black like four color control decks that were like a thousand dollars a piece with all the fetch lands, right? Yeah, that yeah, time was, was every deck. That time was pretty disastrous for like standard tournament attendance as well. Cards were just so expensive. 
And the best decks were the expensive ones. That was yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everyone needed like twelve fetch lands in their deck, and it was yeah, like all all the cards that weren't mythic were like obvious modern and legacy staples. Right. That and was still still pales in comparison to the World Wake era, where every oof. deck started with four Jace the Mind Sculptor, <laughs> and then you added on top of that, and what was it? Zvi's deck, the uh, Bant Mythic, when it was like everything <laughs> but. The basics was like rare or mythic. It was like a $1,300 deck in one iteration. I was card pooling with a couple friends at that time. And I basically had to brand myself as the mono red guy in order to have cards that I could play with. It was, it was horrible. <laughs> Darkness. Yeah. So one of the things that's interesting about War of the Spark, of course, is that we got 36 Planeswalkers. And for the first time ever, they are not all at mythic rarity. So they are at mythic, at rare, and at uncommon. Um, and because of that, the struct, the way that the cards are structured shifts from the, in the varying rarities. And I think that given how prices are flowing right now, um, the hype around the set and I think the difficulty in evaluating planeswalkers at differing rarities, um, is leading to some fairly, uh, boisterous pricing. <laughs> um, so we're going to go through the, the standard cards that have caught our attention that look like they may be important in the format. And in no particular order. Um, and once we're done with that, we'll tackle Modern and then Commander, which obviously is not your uh, your forte necessarily. I don't know. Do you, do you even own any Commander decks? No. Okay. <laughs> I, it's not as... I, I've played more, more Commander than I'm willing to admit. I used to be really into the format, and having worked at many card shops over time, I certainly am forced into some Commander knowledge, but... Fair. It's to not say, your Fournier. For, who, Oh, oh, I hate it. <laughs> All right, so you'll bear with us for the, the the final segment as we quickly run through some of the strong commander cards. And I'm sure I can still be of help. I, I, I imagine so. All right, so first off, this is a card that actually made the Channel Fireball top five cards for Modern List. And my question is, is this card also going to be useful in Standard? And the card I'm talking about is this crazy new land, Blast Zone. Blast Zone enters the battlefield with a charge counter on it. You can tap it for colorless mana. If you pay double X and tap it, you can put X charge counters on it. And then if you pay three and tap it, you can sacrifice Blast Zone and destroy each non-land permanent with converted mana cost equal to the number of charge counters on Blast Zone. So notably, because it comes in with a charge counter on it, you can't maul a board full of tokens right away. you got to find some way to get a counter off it to tackle tokens. Does this have a role to play in standard? I think it, like I think it definitely does, but it's a, a much more marginal role than it would in uh, in modern or in legacy. Basically, this card is very inefficient but very powerful, and that that's a, an interesting kind of thing to have on a land. You don't normally get like an engineered explosive effect on a land, certainly not in in the modern era. So right. this card's I mean, very good at killing like one mana things and there's just right. so few decks that kind of care about that in standard so i i think it could be very useful as a way to deal with like say mono white uh out of the sideboard of a deck that wouldn't have access to a card like cry of the carnarium to do the same thing it yeah. feels almost more like a pressure valve like yeah we're putting this here as a plant for decks that may show up in the next format that are going to need to be able to be answered. Uh, and the reason this doesn't look like a big deal today is because you don't know it exists yet. Yeah. 
the the biggest thing about this card for sure is that it's a land and the impact of that is going to be felt way more in eternal formats than in standard because of your ability to recur lands with stuff like life from the loam or i guess crucible for is isn't standard right now but it's not good so <laughs> there's right. that but uh the ability to recur it the ability to deal with yeah i don't know like th- there's just so few cheap permanents that are good in standard right now and to deal I- with expensive permanents this card is very bad at doing that I imagine another component here is that for standard specifically, mana costs tend to be stratified a little bit more so than you would see mm-hmm. in the older formats where they get compressed. You know, modern lives between zero and three mana. You know, standard you're playing and really anything. Um, so I guess that is also kind of a barrier there. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting that this card doesn't come into play tapped in that that it, it provides, potentially late game provides immediate um mana boost or utility um and that in combination with some way to untap it you could be manipulating charge counters and setting it off all at the same time it certainly Um, has a very low cost associated with it as a land that doesn't come into play tapped which is very nice and certainly more so in whatever deck can afford to either doesn't care about color so a colorless deck in modern perhaps or a monocolor deck where they can afford some slots that are that are colorless Um, and and get Sorry, go ahead. And, and gets worse if you're, you know, the more colors are in your deck, right? Yeah, it's a bit of a huge struggle in standard right now because all of the reactive decks, because we're in like a Ravnica block, all want to be like three colors, right? So having a colorless land in your deck that's already probably pushing its mana a little bit to play cards like Absorb or the new Nickel Bolus or whatever, probably not where you want to be at. But it is a strong card for sure. The card also leaves me wondering... Um, what kind of relationship this card has with what's coming in Modern Horizons? Ooh. Uh, you know, what kind of <laughs> what kind of meta is being set up in Horizons where they thought Blast Zone might be a nice thing to have on tap? James, That's... we specifically said we were doing Standard and then Modern, and you're throwing it all off, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's, all right. it's hard so, not to think about Modern when you look at this card. It just yeah, screams yeah. Modern, right? Yes, so, absolutely. Bottom line, Blast Zone is a rare. It's currently selling for $8.00. Um, unless this takes off as a four of in a top eighting modern deck, I think we can all agree that's going to fall pretty hard, right? Yes. Yeah. The, the, I can't imagine paying $8 for this at all. Like the amount of play this would have to see would have to be significant because the other thing is, is how many decks in modern or standard are ever going to want to play four of this, right? Like that seems even less likely. Definitely yeah. not going to happen. And we have other like recently printed powerful four of lands from sets um, not too long back, like say Spire of Industry out of Kaladesh, um, where foils have taken a solid two years to finally get into position to take off. And that's played in at least three different archetypes that can top eight on any given weekend. So if Blast Zone ends up being a onesie twosie out of sideboards and stuff in modern, like I think it's entirely safe to just wait till this drops into peak supply mode, gets down into two or three dollars and snap up a couple for your personal collection. I'm going to break the rule here. Um, Dan, do you think that this is reasonable in uh, as a possible playset in like modern Eldrazi, a deck that's already playing heavy colorless that might appreciate that effect at essentially no cost? There might be some random lands in that deck that it's better than, but I, I don't think colorless Eldrazi in modern is barring some very nice inclusions in uh in modern horizons uh that big a player or enough of a player to 
affect the market for this at the very least. Fair, fair. All right, so moving right along for standard. Um, I was taking a hard look at a card that I at first completely overlooked um, because there was an SCG article this morning that was saying, oh, no, this is going to be good. And it reminded me of when I overlooked Outpost Siege um, back in Khan's block, and then it ended up getting up to $4 and holding it for a little while. And the card I'm talking about is Chandra Fire Artisan. Two, two red, four loyalty. Whenever one or more loyalty canters are removed from Chandra, she deals that much damage to target opponent or planeswalker. Now the plus one exiles the top card of your library and you can play it this turn, which applies to lands or spells. And then the minus seven, should you ever get into position to use that, is exile the top seven cards of your library. You may play them this turn, but not for free. You would be paying, selecting cards to play that you have mana to cast or, you know, putting your one land in. Does this strike you as something that could play an outpost siege type role, Dan, in some kind of like mid-range red strategy in standard? So the problem with this card, it's not that it's explicitly bad or anything, but you have to look at it in a very specific way. It is a planeswalker with one ability, and that ability is exile the top card. You may play it this turn. It's literally an outpost siege that can die during combat, and if it were to die during combat, it would deal damage to the opponent, and that's the rest of the ability of the card. But it's an outpost siege, pretty strictly. And uh, to to think about that, we can look at the three cards in standard that are basically already outpost sieges. We have um, uh, Vance's Blasting Cannons, which is right does the exact same thing. Exiles a card every turn, and uh, and then if you play three cards, you three spells in a turn, you win the game or whatever. Um, <laughs> you have Experimental Frenzy, which is uh, that kind of effect just on steroids. And obviously is very powerful in multiple formats. And you also also have Karn, Scion Aversa, which while it doesn't look exactly like a like an Outpost Siege, fulfills kind of the same role of just giving you an extra card each turn. Um, the problem with Chantra is that it's not as good as the best of the effects that... Like the best of the similar effects that already exist in Standard. It, it, it fulfills the role of Karn in a mid-range deck in a much weaker way, in that it doesn't really help you hit additional land drops quite as well. Like, for instance, if you play the Chandra, you plus you exile a land, the Chandra dies or whatever, you don't get that land later, right? Like, Karn's a like guaranteed card advantage in that sense. And we're talking and about Karn, Scion of Urza, not... Yeah, sorry, the, the, the previously existing Karn, not the new one. Right. Yeah. Car- so, Karn number two. Th- yeah. Uh, Did- it's not like Chandra Fire Artisan is, like, unplayable by any means. I just think it, there are pre-existing cards that are better. And those cards will need to rotate or the metagame will have to change such that they're not good for some reason for it to become good. So when I first read this, I didn't think about the fact that her getting attacked removes the counters, which then lets you shoot stuff, uh, which is a, a, a decent rattlesnake. Um, and it was only after the fact I was like, oh, I guess that's also how that worked because she seemed weak at first. Does that additional vector of it, her being either difficult to attack or painful to attack um, improve not not improve her enough against the other options. The kind of decks that would that are very interested in having that additional damage would be, I think, more aggressive decks, which would definitely want experimental frenzy more than they would want Chandra. Gotcha. The the Makes kind sense. of mid range decks that want the slower, more outpost CG effect would, I think, much rather just have the upsides of Karn rather than the spare points of damage that Chandra may or may not give. There's also okay. the problem where uh, cards like this frequently come in out of sideboards, and 
you're not really boarding in uh, Planeswalker-based sources of card advantage against creature decks. It's more likely to die to a removal spell than in combat, I think, making that making that line of text like pretty irrelevant, I think. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, she doesn't actually... It's only If the loyalty counters come off... Uh, oh, you're, you're saying if she's removed by a non-damage removal spell. Yeah, yeah, so, that's what I mean. Right, so... And like of which there are, Trophy. Of which there are at least four. <laughs> yeah, now there's like 18 or something with this. Uh... Right, for... Esper Control has, you know, their druthers in terms of what they want to be pointing at Planeswalkers right now. Yeah. Do you guys see that you can now despark a land? <laughs> because... a despark, which is to remove the spark from something, because what is it, Primal... Is it Primal Amulet or something like that? It has a converted mana cost of four, but when you flip it, it's a land, but it still has the four mana cost, so you can despark it. <laughs> wow, that's a weird so interaction. Which, <laughs> which, which, led me to, which led me to, on a brief thought experiment, was at what point in time do you think the first Planeswalker land card will exist? What year does Wizards print that card? Because they have not explored the card space of ha- of combining those card types, of Planeswalker card types with anything yet. My thinking was like 2026, maybe? 2027? <laughs> it seems to me like a running out of other ideas kind of uh, card design. <laughs> well, so 2023, I, mean, I think. There's some, good narrative, <laughs> there's some good narrative texture there. So like Nisa who shakes the world, like sacrificing herself and becoming the land or something. That works. Yeah, that'd be pretty well, cool. Well, as a... Like sure, as a return, like I could see them doing a a flip set later on where Nissa goes to ground and becomes a land. But I'm talking about a card that says Planeswalker Land, and it like <laughs> you can tap it for mana, and it has Planeswalker abilities. Odd, yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah, so I don't know when, about that one. <laughs> when when Karn Cyan of Urza rotates in the fall, uh, would you give Chandra another look? Yes, absolutely. All right. Um. All right, moving right along. This one strikes me as being much more likely to post up as a four of in standard and also strikes me as the kind of card that just never moves financially, even though it's seeing heavy play. Dreadhorde <laughs> Butcher uh, looked to me like it might be testing well in the in the aggro decks. Looked like it had a lot of kind of potential to do explosive bursts of damage in the deck that was running it. Yeah, the card's definitely pretty strong. Uh, th- my concern with it is that the the kind of era of magic where cards like this existed. So there were a lot of these, a lot of cards Slits. with, yeah, sliths and whatnot, uh, where you could connect with an opponent multiple times with a small creature and get, uh, yeah, just like get those triggers, like Ophidian triggers and whatnot. I feel like that era has kind of passed. Uh, there's a lot more creature decks in standard than there used to be. And so it's a lot more difficult to get that kind of value off of it. That said, Still a pretty good card, I think. They really they really pushed it. And I'm pretty sure that so long as there are uh sacrifice synergy decks, like decks that want a creature to like attack, connect once, and then die in combat next turn, that this card will be will be good. Or possibly, you know, get advantage of its second trigger via Bontu or something. Uh yeah. Judge- Dreadhorde Butcher is black, red, 1-1 one, one haste. Whenever Dreadhorde Butcher deals combat damage to a player or planeswalker, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. And when it dies, it deals damage equal to its power to any target. So if you get that one or two hits in, and then you have the opportunity to get it in the yard, in theory for you know for advantage, then do you see this showing hmm. up as a, as a four of? 
sorry, you cut out there, but I assume you're you're asking how many so, copies will show up in a deck. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it would be in multiples, like uh, more of a three of or a four of rather than anything else. If you're if you want this kind of card, either as a sideboard plan against control or as an integral part of your like aristocrats esque strategy, you definitely want the full set. Right. Do you think there's any legs on this as a combo piece where you are pumping the power somehow, either through a couple slith triggers and then maybe um, an instant or sorcery and flinging it or something to that effect? I think that's very unlikely. Is it just too slow for that? It, generally speaking, uh, like three three plus card combinations that involve creatures tend to just not really fare very well. It's like putting uh, enchantments on creatures and stuff. It's it's just a very fragile game plan that's too easy to disrupt. You're better okay. off playing three more creatures than doing something like that, for instance. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So, so current, I gotta, current, I gotta, currently, I got to ask the questions. <laughs> currently, this card's at two twenty five as a rare. Ceiling's probably four to five dollars. Buy list will probably struggle to get up over three or four unless this is consistently posting up results. So, unless I see this get down to a dollar, I don't think I'm in. I don't see this card being very expensive. Yeah. Okay, how about this next one? I think a lot of people are having trouble evaluating this card uh, accurately. Dreadhorde Arcanist, the other Dreadhorde rare. Um, this one is currently sitting at $5. And the idea here is that it might have a role to play in Standard, maybe in Modern. People are talking about testing it in Legacy. Um, does this card ring any bells for you, or do you think it's it's overhyped? This is the 1-3... Zombie Wizard with Trample for one and a red. Whenever it attacks, you may cast target instant or sorcery with converted mana cost less than or equal to Dreadhorde Arcanus power from your graveyard without paying its mana cost. And if that card would be put into your graveyard this turn, exile it. I love this card. I, yeah. I'm on I'm not really sure how good it is, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> any kind of any kind of thing that pretends to me to be a like a, a repeatable Snapcaster Mage effect just gets sure. my attention immediately. And, and they've to been be honest, trying. Oh, they sure have. I, I, I do like this card. Um, I do feel like its applications will either be in Standard or in Legacy. In Modern, there's a, been sort of a sort of a holy war waged against the, the noble one-mana instant or sorcery. We only get to play <laughs> cards like uh, Serum Visions. Which is just, I don't know. Sure. I'm not really excited to flashback Sarah Visions. It's <laughs> not really the kind of hoop that I want to jump through to get to get to get away with. But what? if you think about it in standard, th- this is a wizard. Uh, and there's always been this kind of borderline playable on the edge of every FNM uh, blue-red wizards deck with uh, Adelise the Cinderwind, right. which cares about creature-type wizard and having a lot of spells being cast. And these cards synergize very well together. Maybe this deck won't be like the 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 Magic Fest winning strategy of uh, of twenty nineteen and twenty twenty, but it certainly seems like it it could be playable. It could be very fun, which is always a a nice thing to do in standard. But this card's mostly exciting for me in Legacy. Now, uh, Dan, the ability I, to be I, brainstorming and pondering and lightning bolting and red elemental blasting. Obviously, that card's not great during the combat step but (laughs) still like that's very exciting to me and that's uh very interesting for this card dan i feel like you're doing modern disservice there because there's a wizard's deck there too come on man i don't think the modern wizard yeah you haven't seen that before i'm gonna pretend that i haven't (laughs) 
<laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. All right. So I mean, I, the, I'm, the thing that the thing that rings my bell about this card is that I feel like that brewers can can come at it from a bunch of different angles. You can make use of it mm-hmm. in a low slung aggro deck that is just about that is just casting one and two mana instants and sorceries. That this thing is just getting additional card advantage um, on the attack. You can turn it. You can use it as a combo piece ostensibly by figuring out some way to get its power up high enough that it can cast something obscene. Um, so, like, what's the become immense? You could, like, yeah. del- delve into this thing and then cast something ridiculous, right? I was just thinking that you could also just double become immense it, right? Yeah. Like, it could just attack for 13 points with the become immense. Right. Which is nothing to laugh at. But, again, as I was saying with the other card, <laughs> uh, putting a bunch of uh, effects on a creature is usually a, a risky way to try to win in Magic. It does have Trample, though. So... <laughs> so, you, yeah. play, you play a deck that mills itself with like glimpsy unthinkable and blue black you've got become immense in green this guy is in red and then you double become immense and then the spell you flash back is like lava axe but his power is high enough to cast a lava axe so then he and the red spell that you cast are lethal they're 20 points i I was thinking more like the the four color five color death shadow zudex that want to go to a very low life total and have a like off of like thought seizes and stuff, which like Dreadheart Arcanist is okay with thought seize, uh, but but also have like a up a common immense team or battle rage win condition, which would be nice with Dreadheart Arcanist. So maybe it could see play there. I do generally like the idea that it doubles pump spells that you cast on it, which could also be relevant in standard. Well, do you like, think it could it, be like, like a mu- backup mu- in Death Shadow? Mu- mutagenic growth. Uh. Uh, it's probably getting a little bit too cute. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So it's currently at $5, which is kind of about the sweet spot for a good standard legal rare. Um, no real, it's not super attractive to dive in at that price, but what, how do you, what do you put the odds at that this gets somewhere in modern? You say, you think in low? I think very low in modern, fairly high in legacy. Except, really that, except there aren't enough legacy players left to drive pricing. So true facts. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'm on a wait and see with this card. I want to, I want to see an exciting list that catches people off guard, and then I'll rethink it. I, I don't I, think that'll I, happen. I, <laughs> Dan, you are true to form tonight here. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I, I so think it's a really on. cool card, and I would love to see something happen with it. But I, I'm afraid that Dan is likely correct. I would love for this card to be good. Trust me. <laughs> I don't see it happening. Okay. Fair. So this one, on the other hand, I think is a little under the radar just because it's kind of, it follows a pattern that is so well established that people are just like, oh yeah, I've seen this before moving right along. Is But is Gideon Blackblade the most likely mythic in the set to see four of play consistently in standard? Uh, probably, but that's more of a statement on the mythics of the set, rather than, I think, a statement on Gideon Blackblade specifically. I do think there's certainly a world in which Gideon Blackblade ends up as a very common, like, four of in aggressive white decks. But Gideon Blackblade has, like, a very specific weird problem right now, in that the deck that would want it, uh, specifically, like, the white the white aggro deck, uh, is competing in the three-drop slot with, uh... History. 
yeah, history specifically, which is the the weird one, and uh, Banalish Marshal, which is a way better card in that strategy than Gideon Blackblade is. So you're competing because... with History of Banalia, which is very good and very synergistic, but it's the it's hard to evaluate, at least for me, to evaluate the plus one ability on Gideon and how what effect it would have in Creature Mirrors. And, and okay, the, sorry, can we, that's, that's being. The, uh... Sorry, the plus one is up to one other target creature you control. Okay, it's your choice of Vigilance, Lifelink, or Indestructible until end of turn. That's a okay. lot of things. And uh, it's none of them are worth a card, but they all have an impact. And so figuring out like how to evaluate that ability is a struggle. My assumption is that it's good. It's interesting, though. I think that one of the things people are missing is that the plus one actually says... As long as it's your turn, Gideon Blackblade is a 4-4 human soldier. The indestructible is still a planeswalker. Prevent all damage that would be dealt to him during your turn. Because so three mana 4-4 four, four with three. an ability. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're basically getting that st- that tacked on to the plus one without having to, you know, do make ally of Zendikar decisions. You know, that was a very deci- – Gideon ally of Zendikar was a very decision-centric card. Do you want the emblem? Do you want the 2-2? What do you want to do? Um, whereas Gideon Blackblade is, you know, can do something nasty to like an Adanto's Vanguard or whatever and let it get in there with a lifelink trigger and really like open up the gap. And I'm also curious what happens in the fall when History of Benalia like rotates out. You know, is there yeah. a white deck left and does Blackblade then take center stage? That is definitely when, uh, yeah, that's definitely when Gideon steps up. Like there's a right. lot of a lot of cards in this in this set specifically that uh, struggle in terms of being better than pre-existing versions of of like similar effects that will definitely be more relevant once uh, the old ones rotate. Right. So, can you compare Blackblade to Ally of Zendikar? Like, how close are they? Do you feel at this point? I think Ally of Zendikar is a legacy playable card that is that defined a standard format for the entirety of its existence. And Gideon Blackblade is a three mana four four with upside. <laughs> okay, so they're far apart. Okay, yes. Okay, but you <laughs> I would say there might. I would say Ally of Zendikar is four times as good as Blackblade. That's why. <laughs> that's that's a lot of times. That's a lot of times. Yes. Um, I, but okay, but but there could be an, there could be buying opportunity here come late August, early September if we mm-hmm. see this drop to like three or four bucks uh, with history and I think Benalish Marshall too, both on the chopping block, he could become relevant then. Yeah, for sure. The the card is strong. It's it's a good card. It just is in a weird place right now specifically. Okay, I just wanted to get you to say that it was that much worse than Allies in a car. So when it, you know, there's 17 copies in the top eight that you know we can come back to this and. Yeah, I'm happy to get owned. That's, I love getting owned online. It's just one of my main things, you know. That's why I log on every morning, Dan. Well, I mean, hi- history of Benalia has been as high as twenty five dollars during its tenure, um, and rotates in the fall. So, and Gideon, Ally of Zendikar, hit, I think, as high as, I want to say, at least 30, and it might have been 40 at one point um, during its tenure in the format. So, if Blackblade, I don't think we're going to see $4 Blackblades. I think that's pretty unlikely, because I think it will see play. But, you know, 6 to 8 to $10 Gideon Blackblades that have a shot at hitting 20 to 25 at some point, that doesn't seem crazy. Yeah, it seems reasonable to me as a single-digit buy. But as a double-digit one, 
Maybe not. Okay. Okay. So now let's get into the trio of God Eternals that look like they're going to see some amount of standard play and talk through how good these cards actually are. So I'm talking about God Eternal Bantu, Kefnet, and Oketra. Let's uh, start with Bantu. He is a three double black, five, six menace. Whenever he enters the battlefield, sacrifice any number of other permanents, then draw that many cards. And if he dies, like the rest of the gods, you get to tuck him third from the top. This card's pretty cool to me. I like a lot of the uh, potential it gives you to, to recycle excess resources and turn them into turn them into new cards. Um, I like, yeah, I like you can recycle extra lands. You can turn treasures into cards off of a like treasure map or something like that. Let's say you have a a two one explorer creature that drew you a card earlier. Now it can draw you another card. All that seems super sweet. I'll be honest, the 5-6 Menace body is not that exciting to me. It's not really... Like, yes, it's a large creature, but just a large creature is necessarily that exciting in Standard these days. Uh, so you- I like this card. I think it's good. I don't... I, the struggle for me is I don't see what deck it goes into quite yet. It would want to go into like one of these like black-red or... Uh, uh, Mardu. Yeah, or like Mardu sacrifice decks. But those decks have not been proven to be good yet. They have a lot of new tools, but whether that makes them playable or not, I don't know quite yet. What about just slotting into like a green-black Rhinefest? It's competing with so many other cards that provide the same kind of effect, and I think all of those cards do it better. So stuff like Vivian Reed, which generates you know, uh, unsurmountable value over time, and also can kill artifacts, enchantments, and flyers. So, or something like a, a Hydroid Crisis, which goes way over the top of all these other things, and it's just a, a way better super light game card. But if you wanted to be like just a black green shell, maybe God Eternal Bantu can go into it and recycle some of those like explore creatures and land war elves. He, he did seem like he was difficult to really utilize when I read him. Like he jumped out at me as the card that people are primarily going to put in their taste at EDH decks. Um, you this know, card standard, seems great for EDH. Yeah. You're usually just not that eager to eat all of your permanence in standard. Like the one, one tokens remain relevant frequently, you know, in a lot of matches. So I, I don't know. My, my thought was that he was pretty lukewarm. I really want is, to use it to turn treasures your... into cards. Right. Hmm. It, hmm. Is part of your temperature on this that a mass kind of took us away from zombie tokens and towards like zombie Voltron? Certainly. Kind of cutting, yeah, cuts certainly, off that avenue of approach. Yeah, definitely tokens not being a feature of like black decks in the format is a little bit of a problem for this. I would like to see ways to abuse the enter the battlefield trigger, but there just don't, there aren't really all that many of them. All, the one that pops out to me is like treasure map, but that card already turns treasures into cards cards so. right yeah so so let's set this this bar if you're looking a month out into the format so like end of may you're looking at a top eight result from like an scg open how many copies of this are you expecting to see two okay that's more than i would have guessed honestly all right so let's do the same thing with god eternal kefnet this is four or five flyer two double blue you may reveal the first card you draw each turn as you draw it Whenever you reveal an instant or sorcery card this way, copy that card and you may cast the copy. That copy costs two less to cast. <laughs> what a word soup. And of course, it tucks three from the top when uh, it dies or is put into exile. 
as far as I can tell, this card says copy like 15 times on it. So I think if you cast a spell <laughs> with um, uh, the new Rowl in play, I think you win the game. But I, I can't tell for sure. I have to call, you, you call, call a judge. You call a judge and then, you re- and then you win the game. Yeah, yeah. Please uh, don't remind anyone that I am a judge. <laughs> I do not want to be certified <laughs> at this time. Fair. So this card's Kefnet's at 11 bucks. Kefnet's at 11 bucks. Bantu's at 5 Kefnet better than Bantu? Yes, but also I don't know where it goes. There's a lot of cards in the set that have this problem of like, oh yeah, I'm reading them. Oh, this is obviously very powerful. There's a lot of super cool stuff you can do with that. Oh my god, what deck does it go into? This is like the like a set coming in in a very like developed standard format that has a lot of dominant decks. And all of these cards, I'm like, wow, they don't fit into any of these pre-existing archetypes. What am I supposed to do with it? Like, God Eternal Kefnet to me screams, okay, I want a deck that has other creatures, so I'm not, like, a, just exposing myself to removal that they're going to have in their hand, necessarily. What are the blue decks with creatures? Okay, Mono Blue. God, Mono Blue doesn't want this. Drakes. Uh, is this better than any of the Drakes in the deck? It's competing on the 4-chop spot with Crackling Drake, which is, like, a, a 45 power flyer in that deck and an integral part of the strategy. Also, all of the spells in that deck aren't, like, good. So you don't, like... I don't know how much you want to copy, just draw a card. Like, copying opt is not exciting. Right. So, this card's sweet. I don't I have no idea where it's supposed to go. <laughs> Got it. it. Yeah, that's tricky because, like, it's not even like your figure, any deck that plays this is generally going to play some sort of cantrip and also probably counter spells, neither of which is really like the cantrips don't get the mana bonus and the counter spells won't use some mana bonus because you're not going to cast them. So, it's just. What the hell do you cast with this? It almost wants to be in like a salt eye build or something, right? Where yeah, like this you're card sucks in control, that's for sure. Yeah. Hmm. It's yeah, and it doesn't give you enough savings. It feels like to do anything too exciting in other formats, especially since you had to pay four to get this on the table in the first place. Yeah, this certainly isn't uh, like a particularly applicable card for eternal formats, I think. But all right, so at, at eleven dollars, we we don't want any part of this, right? Hard pass. Okay. Um, got got, and and the, and your top eight quotient on this. How many copies in the top eight a month? Out? Uh, unlikely. You think zero? <laughs> okay. Uh, God I, eternal. I would, I would be sur- sorry. I would be surprised and happy if it did. This card's cool, and I want it to be good, but I don't see it happening. All right. So how about God Eternal Oketra? Three double white, three six double strike. Whenever you cast a creature spell, create a 4-4 black zombie warrior creature token with vigilance, and you still have the tuck ability. That's a hell of a triggered ability. Whenever you cast a creature spell, make a 4-4? It has vigilance? So, so get this. Um, Oketra's Monument monument in EDH reduces creature spells by... White creature spells by one, right? So you have white main lions that are one and a white, so they basically cost one white. So an EDH with an Oketra's Monument on the table... God Eternal Catcher just like makes four fours for every white mana you have. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. (laughs) (laughs) So I will say that. uh, Well, okay, okay. Let's finish the conversation here. (laughs) Obviously, it seems like a capable card. I'm going to ask this question right away. What is your line for copies in the first eight or in the first month? Copies in the top eight, first month. I, I I again think it's unlikely that this card will appear in the top eight of standard tournaments a month out. 
Again, really? for, for, this, for the same problem as all of these other cards where I can't figure out what deck wants this. So let's just back up a step and talk about the metagame coming into the release of this set and why some of that is true. We have Autumn's blue deck that won the Pro Tour. Um, super fast, efficient, flying aggro deck. Um, Red's been present forever in Standard, it feels like, um, and looks like it's still great. Um, and then um, Esper Control has a million tools. Is, it's is already that... a pretty finely tuned deck, yeah. Right. And so what else do you put into that like group of top-tier decks that all of these cards need to figure out how they measure against? I think there's a pretty fast Tier 1 to Tier 1.5 in Standard. And aside from what you mentioned, I think there's also mono-white or white-x aggro decks. So, right. Uh, yeah, like the, the Banalish Marshall decks. And I haven't really seen a card in this set for them, except for maybe there's the the one mana 1-2 that you can use to tap down large creatures. Mm-hmm. Like, like that card's good for that deck, but to common, so who cares? Um, there's Sultai, or like Black Green X. Sure. Which, a mid-range maybe there's a fest. few things. Yeah, like maybe stuff like Liliana Dreadhorde General is good in that deck, but again. Uh, so there's that. Um... There's uh, Wilderness Reclamation decks, so either Blue-Green Nexus of Fate or Teamer Reclamation with Expansion Explosion. Right. And uh, I'm sure I'm missing something. There's like Green Beatdown decks. There's the Gruel Warriors Wizards. deck. There's not Wizards in the first <laughs> tier or two. <laughs> That's somewhere in the third one. <laughs> but okay. basically, there's there, there are a lot of decks in Standard right now. But they all are already pretty well-defined, and most of them aren't really missing pieces. And that's an awkward proposition for seeing a set that has a bunch of powerful cards that are kind of build around me, in a sense. Like, all these gods are build around me cards. God of Colonel Oketra, to take advantage of it, you want a bunch of creatures in your white deck. But you also have to have a white deck that wants wants a 5-drop. God of Colonel Bantu wants you to sacrifice things. God Eternal Kefnet wants you to have a bunch of spells that you want to cast on your turn that have some form of impact, and you want them to be cheaper. Like, you want to be able to take advantage of the fact that they're cheaper. All of those decks don't really exist yet. They will need to be made to exist for these cards to be good. Okay, mm. so Ketra's at I, six bucks right now. Um, I feel like one, maybe two of these three are going to be worth a really hard look come to fall, right? So for sure, I, I want to see these. I want to see these get down into the sub five dollar range, and then I'm going to start thinking hard about it. For, for the amount of competitive Magic experience that I have, uh, and my resume stops at one SCG top eight. Uh, oh, Catcher jumped out at me as possibly the best card in the set. Uh, that triggered ability just seems insane to me. Like the body is completely viable on its own. And then the triggered ability turns all of your like dinkly weenie creatures that you had to play at one and two mana to keep pressure on into like ultra threats that are double two separate bodies later in the game. I love this card, but I totally respect Dan's point that it's, you know, finding a very crowded standard format and it doesn't know where to stand. But damn, if I don't love this card come September, it is really powerful. I'll give it that for sure. I just don't know where it goes yet, like with everything else. Right in someone's face. <laughs> Six points. Let's go. All right. So I think this next one we can agree is certainly going to have a home, although probably not as a four of. 
Liliana Dreadhorde General. Seems like it's been set up to be good in the format, right? <laughs> six mana, six loyalty. Whenever a creature you control dies, draw a card. That text alone makes it a commander all-star. Plus one, create a 2-2 black zombie creature token. Minus four, each player sacrifices two creatures. That also helps in EDH. Minus nine, each opponent chooses a permanent they control of each permanent type and sacks the rest. This card is unreal. It's so strong. It does cost six mana, but it's so strong. It it reminds me a lot of Elspeth Sun's Champion in terms of, I think, the effect that sure. it would have on a mid-range mirror and standard of just being kind of unbeatable. It protects itself in two ways. It has this absurdly powerful passive ability. Uh, whenever a creature you control dies, draw a card. That's And, and not even non-token. Wow. Yeah, like, that's... You don't even lose a life like you do on a... I forget the name of the card, but the one that the the Black Green X deck sometimes already play in standard. It's it's just so strong. But it's also competing for real estate with a bunch of other specifically powerful effects that already exist in those decks. Like uh, Carnage you... Tyrant and uh, Hydroid Crisis. Right. Do you see Esper Control running this? No, no. It's it's a it's a mid-range card. It's it goes in mid-range decks, I think, very specifically. Okay. Uh, I think you do need to be taking advantage of the whenever you creature you control dies draw a card for it to be as good as as good as advertised. If you if you if the deck comes together where you can run this plus Bontu, things get nasty Ooh. in a hurry, right? Oh baby. The Bontu trigger with her on the table. <laughs> that's like oh, no, a rip. I had that thought in my brain, and then I didn't say it because I'm like, that sounds yeah, terrible. Dumb. Why would you ever cast that Bantu after you've cast Liliana? Like, what deck are you playing? Well, you're, you yeah. might have, they might have, you might have made a token, and then they killed it, and then you drew a card, <laughs> and so Bantu is suddenly in your hand. Um, I I just don't think it's fair to make people that excited when talking about cards. <laughs> yes, yeah. okay. We're gonna put an NSFW tag on this. Yeah, and, like and the ruins the rest of their night. And the bottom line is, everybody <laughs> thinks this is good, so it's already twenty dollars. Yes. So, and I don't see it as a, you know, I'm not sure it's a four of, cause I haven't seen any lists that are, that tend to be running more than two. So I'm not real interested in Dreadhorde general until it gets much, much lower. I think but we then, have a fair, sorry, go ahead. But then long-term show me when this rotates at a standard and show me how cheap foils get. And then we can talk about a commander. Oh yes. <laughs> it's going to be crazy there. I think we have a very useful analogy for this card, historically speaking, in terms of how playable it's been and how its role in decks will evolve, specifically in Elspeth Sun's Champion. And I right. played a lot of that card back in the day. The The Abzan control deck was a very dominant strategy, and it, for the most time, for the most part, played three copies of Elspeth Sun's Champion, sometimes gotcha. going down to two and it had other grindy things going on. Uh, I think it's fair to assume that if there is a powerful black green mid range deck in standard or like a black red one, maybe that it will play like three copies of Liliana Dreadhorde General. If you're adding another color for something like Hydroid Crisis or whatever, then you go down to two copies. But if you're playing a mid range deck and expect to play against other mid range decks, this will be in your standard deck and will be expensive. <laughs> okay. So uh, a month out, top eight copies. Uh, three. Okay, so one of the decks. Yeah. Okay. I um, think the format will remain diverse, and that would stop it from being like stop there from being multiple black green decks in the top eight. Right. Nickel Bolas, Dragon God. Ooh. How much of a trap is, is Grixis Control heading into this format? 
I hope it isn't because I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that, is For the that sake your... of my win rate. Are, are you testing it? Yeah, for sure. Okay. This so, card has a ho- horrible mana cost and some nice abilities, let me tell you. Some some very nice abilities. Um, my, my read on this was that that tax, that first line of tax, is one of the coolest things I've ever printed on a Planeswalker, but in practice is close <laughs> to useless. Yes. Uh, am I accurate there? Absolutely. I, okay. I, I glaze over the... Nickel Bolas Dragon God has all yeah 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 but guys I'm gonna do Jace Cunning Castaway and then we're gonna have three Nickel Bolas that's not win okay. more right okay cool <laughs> <laughs> all right I just want to go on record that James when James told me about this card he's like that <laughs> when when we were talking about it he's like oh it's so cool people are gonna love this ability and I'm, I mean well, yeah I'm, people like, are gonna love so it. tacked well, on I, I said they're gonna love this ability in EDH let's be clear. Um, I don't know if you know this, Dan, but I saw this card two months before everybody else um, ah. and managed to keep my mouth shut. But I've had more time than most to think about what this card does. <laughs> and I'm certainly much more excited about the plus one and the minus three than I am anything else. Oh. Um, plus one, you draw a card. Each opponent exiles a card from their hand or a permanent they control. That is such serious card advantage. Um, and basically sets them up where they have to answer it more or less right away, right? Or you just become a runaway train. Yeah. So I wrote about this in uh, my last article, actually, where I threw this into the standard Grixis deck, which always... Which need- is on what website? Uh, magic.facetofacegames.com. There you go. Okay. Yeah. The plug. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, that plus one is really, really, really powerful and is specifically so powerful in standard uh, blue-black X. Because you have a lot of effects that are already going to be taxing your opponent's hand size. Thought Erasure is really good and standard right now, which is a Thought Seize effect. Uh, if you're playing uh, Grixis, you're probably going to want uh, Nicol Bolas. I think the Ravager, the creature Nicol Bolas, like the flip yeah, creature yeah, yeah. from M, mm-hmm. whatever year it is. M19. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> M19. Close enough. Yeah. Um, which makes your opponent discard a card when it comes into play. So already they're like over the course of normal gameplay for the deck, they're down two cards. Uh, presumably you're going to interact a bunch, then you slam a Kabbalah's Dragon God, plus it, you draw a card, and then suddenly your opponent's faced with a difficult decision of like, okay, I have two cards in my hand. They're both pretty good. I'm probably pretty low on lands. What do I do? So finding ways to make the, the second <laughs> half of that plus one effective is going to be very, very good. If you're ever able to put your opponent into a hole where each opponent exiles a card from their hand or a permanent they control is good, this card's going to be obscene. And the deck that it goes into does that naturally. So what other what other role players are alongside Nicol Bolas? Is this like, are there multiple Planeswalkers in this deck? Um, I don't think so. I think all of the other like high value cards that you would want to play in this deck are not of the Planeswalker card type. Like, Enter the God Eternals has, like, 3,000 lines of text on it. Uh, it does four damage to a creature. You gain that much life. Mill them for four. Make a 4-4. Four, four. Yeah. It's like, it's like a 12-point <laughs> cool. life swing for five. Yeah, it's, like, a lot. There's just a lot going on on that card. And that's, like, basically a Planeswalker, as far as I'm concerned. If you get to do, like, three things, that's a Planeswalker. Sure. Um, you have, I, I guess... The flip side of the four mana and Nicol Bolas is a, is a Planeswalker. <laughs> it is a nasty dude in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, if you get seven mana, you win the game, blah, blah, blah. 
So, so is this a type of card that you think could be an anchor for a planeswalker, like a pillar? I think it is more likely than not that this card will be a pillar of the standard format. Huh? So do but you put its you mana put, cost is restrictive as hell. <laughs> it does that lead you to running chromatic lantern, or is that just a wasted slot? No, I think you can just play this in the normal Grixis mana base. I don't think okay. you need to play uh, Chromatic Lantern for it. Although, okay. I think if you were playing some like Chromatic Lantern memes, this card could fit in. But it certainly leads you to be black-centric, right? Because of the triple black? Yeah, the mana bases in the standard are a little weird in that they kind of let you do this already. Uh, as long as you play like 26 lands with two black sources, having twenty like 12 shock lands, 12 check lands, and two swamps... Already puts you naturally at a uh, 16, 18 block sources, which is like not really that far off from what you need to cast a triple block spell on five or six. Okay. It, it's, it's a little sketchy, but you can just do it anyways. So how many copies <laughs> of Nicol Bolas Dragon God in that deck? I've decided on three for now. Okay. Uh, I could see two as well. I and think four is probably not where you want to be, given that it is a difficult to cast five mana planeswalker. <laughs> and fewer than that is like, why are you screwing your mana base to put this card in your deck? If you're well, only going to play four it, like, is where one you, copy. Four is where you want to be. It's just less wise than three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a month out, top eight, how many copies? Yeah, three. <laughs> so you th- three, three if it's so good, then six. Right, and and is that because you still you still see an Esper control deck taking up some of those top eight slots? Yeah, for sure. Right. Okay. Um, T- T- Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, didn't get is... worse all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they didn't nerf it or no anything. No kidding. All right. Uh, fair enough. Uh, so this next one, uh, significantly lower power level. Nissa, who shakes the world. I went right past this when I first saw it and just saw it as yet another inferior Nissa with some pretty good art. But Ali Antrazi was running this during the streamer showdown last night for about 13 hours. <laughs> and I managed to catch about two and a half hours of it uh, at one point where he was running just a pile of planeswalkers with chromatic lantern. He had Nicol Bolas in the deck alongside Nisa who shakes the world. Um, he, yeah, it was crazy. He was, he was, he was, I think Gift of Paradise was the other thing enabling that. Um, and then he ran Tamio, Collector of Tales, who got opponent after opponent when they tried to target him with Thought Erasure and <laughs> ran up against her Can't Cause You to Discard Cards clause. <laughs> okay. Can we, can we take a very brief note? Is that Tamio as terrible as I think it is? Yes. Tamio, Collector of Tales. Yes, Too bad. This, okay. this card sucks. <laughs> that is all. <awesome. laughs> all right, so okay. so pile o planeswalkers like Antrazi was fooling around with. Do you think that's just a meme deck or is that a thing? I would venture to say a meme deck in a format where mono white beat down spell pierce aggro and uh mono red burn are three of the predominant decks. Sure. Playing a bunch of like mid-range value cards without uh like the black green explore package there to defend it probably not wise but i do think that this nessa is is powerful but it's powerful because of its static ability which is whenever you tap a forest for mana add an additional green which is and the par- not the part historically I- a powerful standard effect but a very powerful like edh effect 
Well, the, the part I missed there was that if you have a shock land and you tap it for blue, it makes blue green. Yeah. So that's pretty it, cool. It is nice that it has synergy with shock lands, but I, I don't know. There's just not that many things to ramp into in standard, and the decks that want to do that are doing it, I think, much more effectively with uh, uh, Wilderness Reclamation. So, yeah. It's unlikely for it to be good, despite it being, I think, a very strong card. I, I actually went ahead and pre-ordered, and I never pre-order standard cards, but <laughs> I pre-ordered, I think, 60 copies of this at a dollar in Europe okay, that, yesterday. That's a great buy. <laughs> in in Europe, because I was like, I, I'm not convinced. Like, Antrazi's running it, but it's looking janky. Prob- I can't see this being a top eight card anytime soon, but a dollar, like, it's $3 in North America. Europe was giving them to me for a dollar. Buy list maybe a buck fifty at some point, and then I'm totally fine. Um, but at US there's, pricing at three dollars, I'm I'm waiting to see. There's no way that this isn't an important uh, EDH card in years to come. So, yeah, the- yeah. I mean that's that's safe at the very least. That you know it'll be popular in EDH. And I pointed this out to James the other day that um, what's noteworthy here is it. Uh, Oh, she is five minutes. Didn't you tell me she was four? Okay, never mind. Forget everything I was just going to say. I noticed she's five, not four. We talked about her as she oh, she was four the other day. <laughs> I mean, she in green, five, five, five is the new four because it's green. So, <laughs> But anyway, uh, I liked it at a dollar. I bought some. I don't like it at $3. Moving right along. Um, I think we are I think we can all agree that we'd be surprised if it made a top eight anytime soon. Yeah. Um, how about this one, though? Oath of Kaya. How, how good is that? in this format to hold off aggro decks, say in the hands of Esper Control? And how many copies a, might they want to run? I think it's a powerful card that you could see an Esper deck playing multiple copies of. Certainly paying three mana for a Lightning Helix isn't too embarrassing. And then there's some text on it, like whenever an opponent attacks a Planeswalker you control, they take two and you gain two. Like That's not like great, but it's not it's not nothing. Uh, that, that said, it's not like it's a, a powerful card. Like, it does something that is nice and good and that you want access to. But it's that kind of thing you want access to out of the sideboard and with maybe one copy in the main deck as, like, two, maybe three copies in your 75. Got it. Which so you doesn't... Would... I, it, it's like, uh, this card doesn't really feel like a rare to me. Let's put it that way. Okay. So, say top eight a month out, say two Esper Control players in the top eight and maybe three to four copies of this appearing? Yeah, sure. Something like that. Uh, now, at a at a dollar, Bylas Bylas support maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I there's like a I think there might be a weird perception problem with this card where it's it doesn't feel that much like a rare if that makes sense. There Felt was a like point it could have been an uncommon. Yeah, and I don't obviously I, I'm not really an MTG finance expert by any means, but I, I there's. There's a chance to me that, that this card never becomes expensive. It doesn't feel to me like it will ever be a card that's worth money. But that is purely my gut speaking. That's <laughs> yeah, worth something. I, there was I, there was a card a few standards ago. Uh, it was Liliana's uh, Oath, I think. Oath of Liliana. Sure, yeah, yeah. Mm. And th- I believe that was also a rare that also cost three. Yep. Uh, and uh, what it did was... It did cost three, right? I think it's two, but go on. No, no, it was black and two. They printed a similar enchantment in the next set that was black and one. When it comes into play, an opponent sacrifices a creature, 
uh, when a planeswalker enters the battlefield or you cast a planeswalker under your control, I don't remember which one, you get a 2-2 zombie. So it was just like a an overcosted effect with a similar random planeswalker related upside. Yep. That actually saw a lot of play in standard sideboards because like Mardu Vehicles was the the deck. It was the deck at that point. And all of those decks had like three copies of Oath of Liliana on their sideboard uh, for the sideboard switch into a more mid-range strategy. And so you'd see like tournament top eight said like nine, 12 copies of both the Liliana or whatever. And it was still 50 cents. Yeah. It started. It's just as, not a rare, <laughs> despite that, it literally that, being a rare. That, that card is a excellent comparison because it started at $6 and then fell off a cliff. And within a month was down under a dollar and it's been there ever since. Yeah. And then saw a lot of play and didn't change price. <laughs> so. All right. So no, I think Dan's totally on track here, and he's correct that the perception really can add up depending on the the card. Where you know Tarmogoyf still holds quite a price point, even though it's not nearly as played as it used to be in cards that are played a lot. But people don't think of them as being expensive cards. Can't really climb, and you know it has a way of straightening itself out eventually, but not always. Yeah. All right, let's get into a juicy one then. This is one of uh, a card off cast. I asked Dan to flag a card that he thought was undervalued. Tell us about Roalesque Apex Hybrid. Ooh. So green, green, blue, two, four, five, flying trample, legendary human. <laughs> and then there's a lot more text. I, I appreciate the theatrics. Well, it's a very theatrical card. My man is yeah. He's flying. flying. He's got a blue cape wings with yeah, a lobster claw sticking out of his hips. That's sick. That's so cool. Yeah, he's like a lobster. That's it's hard dope. to find <laughs> pants that fit on this guy. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. What Tailored. a struggle. Yeah. <laughs> when Roalesque enters the battlefield, put two plus one plus one counters on another target creature, and then when Roalesque dies, proliferate, then proliferate. That's that's like <laughs> that's a, a lot, lot of text on a card. <laughs> that's a lot of text. Also, it's a five mana four or five flying trample, so that's like all right. It has a dies trigger, which is like pretty good. Passes some like removal tests pretty well. It puts counters on a creature when it comes into play, which reminds me of a, a certain other playable card of times past, uh, Virgerus Ver, Gearhulk. Yeah, Virgerus Gearhulk. Virgerus, yeah. Virgerus. The um, <laughs> what's what's the green what's the green card that taps for three mana if it gets the counter on it? Oh. Oh, oh that elf. Incubation yeah, the, druid. The, the, incubation druid. That's the one. Incub- yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's a synergy I hadn't really considered, but that's that's certainly nasty this, too. this is probably what you're ramping into already. So yeah, I guess it only costs five though. It's that kind of card where you don't really need to ramp into it. You are going to be able to play it over the normal course of gameplay, right? And it, it is powerful. It is a human and it is legendary, which are all all just like random upsides in Magic. The, the weirdest thing upside? for me, and I I'm generally a huge cynic when it comes to like uh, adding random cards to modern decks, but. This effect could be really strong in modern humans. You generally have a bunch of creatures that have a lot of uh, plus oh, one plus yeah, one counters on them. Mutants. Yeah, it's a human, and it pro- it puts counters and then proliferates twice. And so you have all these humans that are going to have plus one plus one counters on them from a Thalia's lieutenant, like, yeah, and... or a champion of the parish and whatnot. Right. And like, I don't know. I don't think like this is the kind of effect that modern human really needs, but it could. <laughs> I'd like to see the look on your face when somebody casts it against you on a SCG open one day. Oh, I just like jump up and clap. 
I'd just be happy. <laughs> like, hell yeah, Think dude. about how big of a creature your Aether Vial could put in the, put in the play if you yeah, killed yeah. a Rolesque. <laughs> so, so the standard you said before was it had these cards need, all of these mythics need decks to fit into. Where does this go? That's another one of the problems here. <laughs> um, th- this one has Recurring an upside when it comes today. to that. It has a bit of an upside when it comes to that problem because there is already the uh, Sultai kind of mid-range deck that has, between all the Explore creatures and uh, Wild Growth Walker, a bunch of things that already have counters on them that you might want to add more to, to attack with. Uh, the dies trigger becomes very good when you have like a deck that already has a bunch of planeswalkers in it, as well as a bunch of creatures that apples and on counters. Like every single line of text on this card is relevant to that deck, and it has a mana cost that's very easy for it, like double green with a blue splash. So, if the if this sees play in standard immediately, it will be in the Saltai deck, I think. How many copies though? Two. Okay, because it's currently a. Th- sub four dollar mythic that most people are taking a pass on so if it saw a significant play like if it was two copies in the deck but three of those decks were in the top eight this might be a six to eight dollar mythic there certainly have been blue green explore decks that have existed in standard or like bant or whatnot like there's certainly a lot of room for exploring this card (laughs) in different standard shells yeah and it is again it is powerful it just in and of itself. So. And then post-rotation, certainly one of the more powerful cards that's just sitting around waiting for somebody to do something with it. Yes, but it also, I think, loses all the all the Ixalan plus one plus the one X- counter green creature synergies. Sure. Which might not actually matter because it kind of is strong on its own. So who knows? So you don't have any designs, though, on using the double proliferate trigger to pump up planeswalkers to do something ridiculous or like set off any ultimates? I like to view stuff like that always as a as an upside of a card rather than a selling point of a card. Like, if you get to proliferate a Planeswalker, sweet. But you're not trying to proliferate a Planeswalker, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, Can't be your strategy. So we'll, we'll, I may as well cover this off now while we're in the groove on this card. In Commander, I love these foils long-term because it fits into both versions of the most powerful, well, not most powerful, most popular commander of all time, Atraxa. Because Atraxa Planeswalkers wants it for the double proliferate triggers. And Atraxa Counters wants it because it's just insanely good in the counters deck when you're choosing from the best of the counters creatures of all time and then getting to proliferate twice. That's just bonkers. I will say that I just looked up Atraxa for the first time and that card is sweet. <laughs> all right so your credentials as an edh player are certainly if they weren't established before we understand them now yeah. let me tell you i have not played edh since this card was released <laughs> yeah so like it attracts is the number one commander deck of all time in terms of overall popularity war of the spark reinforces that to the nth degree and yes. car- cards like this just lean into that super hard so um cool card I, I will look, I want to see how low it gets during release weekend here. If I can scoop some 250 or $3 copies, and if I see some cheap foils, I, I might move in in a shallow way. That makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. So, final card we're covering for standard, Ral Storm Conduit. You actually said that this was the Planeswalker you thought was most likely to post up as dominant? 
certainly based on uh, the existing standard metagame, just slotting this card in is it feels like the most likely to have impact. Okay. Because is... it is very powerful in Teamer Reclamation. All right, so let me read it off, and then you can tell us about that deck. Two blue, red, four loyalty. Whenever you cast or co- cast or copy an instant or sorcery spell, Ral Storm Conduit deals one damage to target opponent or planeswalker, plus two scry one, minus two when you cast your next instant or sorcery spell this turn, copy that spell, and you can choose new targets for the copy. I just noticed that it says cast or copy on the passive. I thought it was only copy. This is even better than I thought it was. <laughs> Love rereading spoiled cards, figuring out they're actually just really good when I thought they were like marginal. <laughs> right. No, so, uh, so what's going on in the deck that wants this guy front and center? So specifically, as a bunch of people kind of got really excited about when this card was spoiled, there's a, a like a three card, kind of a four card combo, I guess, with it. Or if you cast, you have this in play, you cast a spell that costs under four, then you expansion explosion that, and then expansion explosion the expansion explosion, then assuming nothing happens to interrupt it, uh, the two expansion explosions copy each other over and over again, uh, and because of Ral's passive, you kill your opponent. Hmm, what deck in standard has all those spells in it already? Ooh, it's Team Reclamation. Um, So this deck just naturally kind of has that combo in it, uh, but also gets to take advantage of Raul in a different way, which I figured out through some testing. Uh, Raul's minus is really, really, really good with uh, ex- the explosion half of Expansion Explosion. Uh, if you make a big explosion with, uh, like, let's say, Wilderness Reclamation or just some ramp spells or whatever, you have to do it twice with Raul's minus, which is sick <laughs> right so if you're casting it, it for six and they're at 12 they're dead yeah exactly and with reclamation in play you can very easily just play ral uh float like four mana or whatever untap top for eight and then you're doing it for 16 or let's say the game's gone a little bit longer you actually get to untap with ral and uh, wilderness reclamation or let's say you play a second wilderness reclamation it's like very trivial to just explosion your opponent for 20 on like turn seven or something in this deck and that that's just like a a three card combo or whatever that is part of a pre existing deck, so that's right. likely to you see. Don't, you don't, yeah, it's just like good in the deck. So you don't have to work for it. The pieces are there, and sometimes you're just going to get paid off yeah. by the fact that it exists. Yeah, you don't really have to work very hard. You don't have to build a new deck. You don't have to build around it. It just improves an existing deck, and that's good for late standard, I suppose. Right. So it's. Would you say that that is the opposite of the other end of the spectrum, which is like Celestial Kirin with the new, with the new X, <laughs> X spirit? <laughs> yes, absolutely the opposite. <laughs> I'm going to Armageddon all of modern. No, you're not. <laughs> because there's no deck shell built around that two card combo that makes any sense. Correct. The reality is instead of that, you're going to lose right. a lot. So, so Ralstorm <laughs> Conduit, how many copies in that deck? Uh, three or four. Okay, so he's currently I, I $4. Started four, I started with four and went down one because you draw a lot of cards in that deck, so <laughs> finding one isn't too big of a problem. And do you think that that's going to command enough of the metagame to take at least one slot in a top eight? Probably. I, I think it's a significant upgrade over the like existing version of Team Reclamation, which is already like pretty good and totally playable. Uh, so I think, yeah, it's more likely. Also, the cards in the set encourage you to be playing more of a mid-range 
more of a mid-rangey kind of standard meta game. There's like definitely like no aggro cards in this set, so <laughs> yeah. The, and the more mid, also, the more mid-range things get, the better team reclamation that gets. So, and if I understand this correctly, wilderness reclamation is in Ravnica block, correct? Yeah, it's in. Uh, yeah, it's in Ravnica Allegiance. Okay, so it's one of them. You also have Expansion Explosion, which is also in Ravnica, right? This will be around for a while. <laughs> yeah, so this is going to persist through rotation. Like, at least RAL and Expansion Explosion and Wilderness Reclamation. So that's interesting that these are going to be sticking around. Yeah, this entire deck is like Ravnica block constructed. So mm. so this this ends up setting up a race. It's a race between... How long it takes for that deck to top eight something or catch catch the the attention of enough pros that it gets a lot of hype cycle before the bottom drops out of the card. If the card draw it's at four dollars now, if I can get it at scoop it at two fifty and then it starts doing things, maybe it gets to five or six. Bylas hits like four, four fifty or something. Yeah, I mean that certainly sounds sounds good. The, the- the card's powerful in the deck, but it has this awkward thing where it's kind of not powerful in a void. It's not like it's just a good card on its own, so it, it specifically needs it needs a deck to be good. So that makes sense. By comparison, Kaya Orzov Kaya Orzov Usurper was about this price when she was first revealed. People took a flyer on it for the most part. I scooped up a ton of them at, at uh, Magic Fest Cleveland, and outed them to buy list at like $14 today um, because well, they're that expensive. Nice. Yeah. I have so many. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, oh, yeah. Kaya That's was seeing, news. you know, lots of play in we standard made money. <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a smattering of play in modern. Do you see Ral yeah. being the same kind of thing? Like a lot of standard nope. play and a smattering of modern or is he just nope. no chance in modern? <laughs> no chance. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. So let's move right along into, we'll switch over to modern. Um, the first two cards here we've already talked about, so I'm just going to talk about them from the perspective of their foil prices. Blast Zone, we said, maybe shows up in Modern, but isn't really a build around or something that's likely to be a four of. More of a role player, sometimes out of the sideboard, maybe a onesie twosie and some colorless decks. Um, foils are currently at 25. I think we can agree that's all way too high. Yes. Okay. Dreadhorde Arcanist, for Modern purposes, foils at 15. Steering clear, because we don't have any proof that this card is going to get anywhere. Yeah, it seems like a huge risk. All right. So how about Fibblethip the Lost? <laughs> Does a blue elvish visionary that has tricky things it can do with Collected Company and other interesting cards in Modern ring any bells for you, or do you think this is just jank? I really hope it isn't jank. I, I love this card. Both in terms of hmm. flavor, in terms of even the text on it, everything it does, I love it. It's the kind of stuff I want to do. I don't think it will see any modern play at all. Okay. Mm. So at Protean- collecting Jake- company decks don't want to just draw more cards off of their collecting company. They want to develop powerful board positions. Okay. Uh, and oh, at the very least, if they're not like always maxed out in like eternal witnesses and stuff, which are better because they get back the collected company, which is way better than two random cards in a Coco deck, right? Mm-hmm. And like, also all the good Coco decks aren't blue, so that's a little bit of a problem. 
So you you think it's my more, read on this? Go ahead. My read on this was that it was cute, but wasn't high enough power level to do that much because you had to do so much work to get anything out of it, and that much work probably would have been better served doing anything else. Yeah, I agree. So okay, okay, but see, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use the Proteus staff, and then I'm going to search for Philothip, but he's my only creature, so <laughs> then I'm going to reorder my entire deck and go off with a six card combo. You already died three turns ago. Okay, okay, but <laughs> then I went in the corner and did the combo by myself, and I gave myself a high five. Okay. Look, if we're Fill using Dan's, <laughs> <laughs> if we're using Dan's implied metric for evaluating cards, which is it gets better the more words are on it. Proteus staff <laughs> is like tier one modern. Yep. <laughs> sure is. <laughs> okay, so that's currently a one dollar card, five dollar foils. We're saying hard pass. I would hard pass. Yes. Yep. All right. So final of finale of devastation. Um. How much do we like having access to a new Green Sun Zenith for modern purposes? Uh, I'm, I'll basically re- reiterate what I said in my uh, said in my reality check article about this card. Uh, I don't like it. I don't think it's good. I don't think it will see play. Okay. Uh, Green Sun Zenith is uniquely powerful because paying N plus one, or I guess X plus one in this uh, nomenclature for a creature was always kind of worth it either because paying two mana for a land of war elves that kind of thing like that's a reasonable return still uh or paying let's say oh you can pay four mana for the utility of going and getting uh uh like a knight of autumn or something something to that effect okay. like that's always worth it but all of a sudden when you're paying like three mana for a land of war elves or five mana for a like a reclamation sage effect it doesn't feel nearly as good and it doesn't feel nearly as good because it isn't nearly as good. <laughs> um, it just paying so much more for your for your creatures is quite awkward. Like the reason Chord of Calling is good is because you can tap your board of like random garbage creatures to do the same thing. But the the in between version just just isn't there for me. Do I, do Vizier of Remedies decks care enough about having access to another one of these effects? Maybe that that might be the exception. Because you can just get a two mana card that wins you the game, right? That that might be the 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 difference. I will say that I was I, I'm a little surprised. Um, I was lukewarm on it first too until I someone else pointed out that not only I mean it's a slightly worse green sun zenith in that you're paying the one extra, which in the case of tutoring one mana. <clears throat> One mana creatures is a 50% cost increase. Um, and, you know, it kind of goes down from there. But that matters, can matter quite a bit. But it searches any color creature but rather is, than just green creatures. But it is a green card, um, right? Oh, sure, sure, sure. It's not that you like, it's not that you wouldn't play in like a green deck. And it does, it's double green, so it's harder to cast. But it gives you the choice of trying to get a little cuter with it, I guess. And we know green sun is banned. Like it's already, green sun is not banned entirely on power level is more diversity type thing, but like it's good enough to be banned. So it's like, well, is a worse version of green sun possibly good. Cause I mean, you can put this in like a Kiki Jiki build where now it goes and gets you either half of the combo. Um, and I mean, quarter calling still does that as well, I guess. I don't know. I guess I didn't have enough <laughs> reps with green sun Zenith really to say for sure. I, I would, I'm just surprised. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just surprised. I would like to go on the record and say that Green Sun Zenith is in no way worthy of a modern ban, and its inclusion on the ban list, as, all, as its reasoning, is nonsense. 
Hmm. <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> we are banning this in order to promote diversity. Okay, cool. Now green creature decks are unplayable. <laughs> okay, cool. That, that's diversity. Yeah. So, so the fact that finale of devastation goes to the graveyard doesn't add anything to you. Uh, I don't really want to pay five mana for an eternal witness for okay. free. <laughs> okay. That's that's, um, that's what I think when I think of that, and I don't care for that. <laughs> so my final thought on this card, other than the price, which is at $10 and 25 for foils, which I think we can all agree is way too high for in both cases, um, and is likely to have the bottom drop out under it. Uh, you don't see this showing up in standard at all? Uh, I would think that is very unlikely. Okay. There, I, there are so, very few creatures that are worth paying two more mana for in green <laughs> so the only other thing to point out then is that this becomes a commander spec target for sure if the bottom drops out hard because in commander this card does crazy things um not only are you in a format with soul ring mana crypt mana vault etc um where you know one more mana for your x spell doesn't really matter much um you also have an infinite toolbox of options of what combo piece you're going to get and mining libraries and graveyards is that much more likely to be useful and having the overrun effect if you actually your x is 10 or more could be just game ending that is the format where that part is realistic and that part of the card is very strong (laughs) yeah creatures you control get plus 10 plus 10 or more (laughs) and gain haste tends to kill somebody all right so moving right along what about finale of promise the other mythic uh, the red one that lets you cast like living ends and ancestral vision and stuff for free in modern. I mean, you you already have to have those cards in your graveyard, right? Faithless uh, looting. I think this is probably not the strongest thing you can do with faithless looting. If we're trying to cast uh, zero cost spells for free in modern, we already have way more effective ways to do that in as foretold and electricery, and that deck is not. Not always advertised to be. Sorry, yeah, like Electrodominance, my bad. Yep. And that deck was really not all it was advertised to be, you know? And I think this is kind of a, trying to do that in a more difficult way. And, like, I don't know, it just doesn't seem worth it to me. It's also a lot of, uh, I think, graveyard hate in modern right now. Okay. So you think this is, like, a fringe thing that shows up at FNM modern events in the hands of mad brewers as opposed to something that's likely to post up in top eights? I expect to lose to it once and then win against it in games two and three. Okay. Once. (laughs) (laughs) So currently $8.25 for foils. Likewise, staying away from that, sounds like. Um, How about Ilahar the Razebore? The only one of the gods not from Amonkhet. This is a 6-6 trample for five, uh, three and two red. Whenever Ilaharg, uh, the Razebor, attacks. You may put a creature card from your hand onto the battlefield, tapped and attacking, return that creature to your hand at the beginning of the next end step. Do you have any interest in Faithless looting this into the graveyard and then Gorio's vengeancing it into play and doing nasty things with Gristlebrand? What I would say to that initially, first off, before I talk about the card in a serious tone, uh, I would like to say that it is a boar god with a <laughs> green mullet. <laughs> and that that is the dopest thing I've ever seen, <laughs> and that this card should be played on that merit alone. Yeah, they totally went and got him from Coachella. And this card is cool as hell. I love it. I don't yeah. think it's good though. Pig God, Pig God. <laughs> right. So you you don't think it's going to be a a? I'm assuming you're saying that Goryeo's Vengeance isn't where you want to be in modern. 
And B, if you do, you don't see this as being a central part of it. So here's the thing. This is a five mana creature that has a doesn't have haste and has through the breach on it, basically. It goes back to your hand, but whatever. Your your assumption should be that if you're doing an effect like that, uh that creature coming into play and then attacking a damn well better like win you the game on its own. It better be like ever cool, right? Uh what the the problem with this is that it doesn't immediately put that creature into play attacking. Like it doesn't have haste, right? It, no, it does. It, it's through the breach on a creature. No, like the creature itself does. Like Ilharg doesn't have haste. Pick out. Is, is I mean. Well, no, he does because you're Gorio's Vengeance again, and he's a okay. Legend. But why not just Gorio's Vengeance, the card that you are going to the Gristlebrand with Ilharg, right? Yeah, just Gorio's Vengeance, the Gristlebrand, right? Sure. Like, I think you don't have to jump through another step before doing that. Okay. I'm and five mana isn't really... a, like attacking with. Attacking with Ilharg on turn six in order to cheat Gristlebrand into play. Like, oh, we're cheating Gristlebrand into play on turn six. So is that <laughs> cheating? <laughs> I, I'm really bummed. When I first saw this, I got really excited. And I was like, okay, so I went and checked the price of Gorio's Vengeances. Because I'm like, uh, you're just going to Faithless Suiting crap. And you're either going to Gorio's like, Emrakul or Gristlebrand. Or you're going to Gorio's Wilbur here. And then drop... <laughs> one of those from your hand in the play, which I was excited about. And then I noticed the clause that like you lose a creature. I was like, Oh, that sucks. Like, or he goes back to your hand and I'm like, Oh, could then, you know, he goes back. Wilbur die. Wilbur died from the Gorios and the other creature turned your hands. So if you didn't kill them in one shot, you don't get there. And I was really bummed that I went and bugged my friend who won a modern GP. I'm like, tell me the best way to get this in the play and keep it there. Uh, and he has unfriended me on Facebook because I asked him that. So, like, I'm just really disappointed because I got so excited when I saw this come up, and it just doesn't seem like there's any way to get there with it. Like, he just costs too much, and because he, all the good ways he leaves play and the creature bounces end of turn, I don't know. I do think the infinite turn combo with Meadowmai is really curious, and that's if this card is broken, I think that's where it is because that is a two card infinite turn combo. Truth. Uh, so, so what? If, so what if it's what if it's Metomai <laughs> and not Gristlebrand? <laughs> Are you more excited? No, I am not excited to have Metomai in my deck at any point. All right, so, <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> and the, but you get to play with Wilbur, so it was a trade off, right? Fair, fair. And it here's the thing. Awesome. And here's the thing. It's one of the most egregious price points. It's twelve dollars on pre order and thirty five oh. for foils. Oh, that's that, so bad. That's, so we're, that's a hell of a risk. <laughs> yeah, so we're just moving right along. All right. The, the uh, problem, the, really, the problem there, I just want to point out, that the problem there is that you're already capped at those prices, right? Like, there's literally nowhere for this card to go. Like, even if this card became a tier one deck in, in modern, that's still the price that card would cost because it's not going to see play in standard, most likely. So there's no room to grow. It is at the ceiling. Yeah, I think, like, it would be good in standard if only there was something worth putting into play. Yeah, like through the bridge would not be good in standard. So, which, which as a side note, because you mentioned this before, and I think this is something that tends to get lost on a lot of players, is that we're used to thinking about like, wow, you can cheat a big creature in the play, and we just dream about this this generic massive creature that we're going to cheat in the play and and win the game with, which is true, right? And modern like cdh whatever but in standard it is frequently the case or at least sometimes the case that there is nothing there there's nothing to go get 
which makes some of these types of cards, whether it's this guy or whatever, um, less appealing because it's like, yes, you can generate a ton of mana, but what are you doing with it? Like the best creature in standard still only costs six mana. There is no 12 mana like game ending creature. Um, And if that, if that, if that piece doesn't exist, it makes all the combo pieces weaker. So this is, I guess this is just a good chance to point out to our listeners that even when you see these types of engines, remember there's gotta be a payoff. And sometimes that payoff doesn't exist in standard. Yep. All right. That's something worth keeping in mind. Here's a card I don't think is good enough for modern, but I at least wanted to run it by you. Um, Narciss Reversal. Two blue, instant, copy target, instant, or sorcery spell, then return it to its owner's hand, and you may choose new targets for the copy. Just play Remand. (laughs) But what about Remands 5 through 8, Dan? Yeah, well, Remand isn't good enough to play copies 1 through 4 anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I don't know. Remand for instants or sorceries only is not, I don't know, not about it. Not going to get there. It's 250 and 13 for foils, so no love for that. Um, what about Neoform? This made LSV's top five cards for Modern List uh, at 50 cents and $4 for foils. This is an uncommon, one of the only ones that made our Modern List here. This is basically Eldritch Evolution for one less mana. I like it. It also gets an additional plus one plus one counter on it. Specifically, it says additional, which I like. I think that's cute. Uh, I, I do think this card's good. It, only because it is uh, a slightly cheaper uh, uh, Eldritch Evolution. Yeah, sorry, I couldn't remember the name of the card. Uh, and that effect is proven already to be pretty good in modern. Uh, there's a lot of like creature-based combos that exist in the format. This is very good in all of those decks. Maybe it's worth it to add a color to like a, a Devoted Trid combo just to play this card. Who if knows? this was a rare, I'd be into it. Um, oh yeah, as an un- certainly. As, from... <laughs> as an uncommon, financially, probably staying clear, but would yeah, love to this... see this show up in a SCG top eight one day. Yeah, the, I think this card will 100% see play and will not be worth anything for many, 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 many years. <laughs> All right. Wait. Um, how about Sahili Sublime Artificer? Also an uncommon, but the foils are currently going for fifteen dollars, which I have to assume um, is because people are. Liking the pr- the prospects of having an additional young pyromancer, monetary mentor type of uh, effect where you're getting free tokens every time you're casting spells. Is this, is this good enough for modern? It's hard to say. This is a very weird card in that it has, a bun- it has an ability on it that we like know how to evaluate pretty well. Uh, like making a 1-1 whenever you cast a non-creature spell. We know that's good. Is it good without an associated body? Is it good as a planeswalker that can be attacked on board? I think that leaves it in an awkward space where it's like definitely not actually good in legacy and maybe good in modern. But I also don't see right now where this would be good in modern. Like blue red spells decks are kind of. It's kind of like. Let's put it this way. The deck where this card would go right now is uh, is Blue Red Phoenix. And Blue Red Phoenix used to play a couple copies of Young Pyromancer. And then every Phoenix player realized over time the Young Pyromancer was hideously unplayable in Blue Red Phoenix. This costs more than Blue Red Phoenix and doesn't have a 2-1 on it. And is that because you want Thing in the Ice to pop off and bounce everything? It also does, it's just too slow and doesn't help you solve any of the deck's problems. Okay. So you it's don't see good like this. No matchups. So you don't see this coming out of the sideboard in Phoenix and otherwise have no idea where it goes. You could just play Jace the Mind Sculptor. Sure. 
And people aren't even doing that. <laughs> think of it. Think of it that way. Now there is Chase the, uh, the mind sculpture is legal, and it's not being played in the sideboard of the blue deck. <laughs> sure. So <laughs> there is another ability on this card that we didn't touch on. Minus two target artifact you control becomes a copy of another target artifact or a creature you control until end of turn, except it's an artifact in addition to its other types. Could could affinity have any interest in this card? I think it's more likely to be a sideboard card in like a blue prison deck than an affinity. Affinity, I think, already has access to more powerful threats for it. So, like in Word, uh, also all, yeah, also all of the, all of the artifacts in uh, in Affinity suck. So, like having multiples of them for a turn doesn't really like accomplish very much, and that might be a bit of a problem for uh, Sahili and Wur as well, in that you don't really want to be copying those artifacts until end of turn. I think, but. Maybe like turning things into like Mishra's Baubles or whatever the deck plays. I don't even know if it plays that card. <laughs> Might actually be worth it. But, I, but I certainly was... it being another like Psy is not bad. If that makes right. sense. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't think of where like where you slot this in something like Affinity. and But certainly caught my attention that you could turn like a Darksteel Citadel into an indestructible Arcbound Ravager. I suppose until end of turn. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just not, it's, not it's just not a strong ability. <laughs> cool. So fifteen dollar foils as an uncommon. I will stay stay well clear of that then. Yes. Okay. But the only the only piece of real jank love that I have to advance during this entire cast. All the other nonsense ideas are just other people's. What about days undoing with Teferi Time Raveler in modern? Oh god, I have to look up Days Undoing now. That that's 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 time twister, but no it's a good sign. That's a time twister where nobody ever played it because it ends your turn and it's a sorcery. But with Teferi, you would time twister at the end of their turn and untap with a full grip. And if it's your turn and the scrolling. Turn, oh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's let's deal with teferi himself first of all let's see if he's even worth playing teferi time raveler one white blue for loyalty each opponent can cast spells only anytime they could cast a sorcery plus one until your next turn you may cast sorcery spells as though they had flash which of course means days undoing minus three return up to one target artifact creature or enchantment to its owner's hand and draw a card which is basically mana war draw one by far the most exciting uh ability on this for me is the minus three and if it's playable this is a standard card almost for sure and because yeah i mean it's just a standard card it's like not like that high of a power level and whether or not it's good is going to hinge entirely on how effective that minus three is and it's a little bit of a problem because the shell that would want it is esper control and esper control probably doesn't want this card there's just so many other better things that it has going on um is there a bant wilderness reclamation brew that would like to be able to cast stuff at instant speed with reclamation i think it would just rather play only instance in the first place sure okay so this is a in your mind a far stretch for modern certainly not the extremely expensive card that it is right now yeah it's 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 at 15 dollars for non-foils and 40 for foils for a rare it's it's the card's fine. It's definitely playable. It's definitely good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not at fifteen dollars. <laughs> this might be one of the most overpriced cards in the set right now. Yes, 
let's put it this way. When you sent me this spreadsheet and I looked at the prices, seeing a lot of these prices for the first time, I was actually extremely upset when I saw Tavares price. (laughs) (laughs) I had to double check it was a rare and not like an Egyptian god rare or something. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So finally, um, I don't think this one's going to fare much better um, under your under your scrutinous gaze, Ugin the Ineffable. All I've got to say is that I don't F with this card. <laughs> okay. Fair no, actually, I, I do actually think this card's pretty powerful. All right. but... he can't, I was excited. He, he can't come back. That was it. That was a bridge too far right there. <laughs> I think that's fair. We'll take it. We, we have a bad pun at the start of every episode that he hasn't even heard yet for this week, so we'll give it to him. Oh, oh God. <laughs> so six, six casting costs, four loyalty. Colorless spells you, ca- you cast cost two less to cast. Plus one, exile the top card of your library face down. Look at it. Create a 2-2 colorless spirit creature token. When the token leaves play, you put the exiled card into your hand. So you're making a 2-2 to defend Ugin, and then later you get the card that was morphed. Minus three, destroy target permanent that's one or more colors. Is this just like... Tron has lots of options, and this isn't a good one? It's definitely, I think, not better than anything else that Tron has. But it's also a six-mana colorless card that has three very powerful abilities. And that I'm very certain will at some point show up. I don't know where. (laughs) So is this this the kind of card you expect Sam Black to rock one day two years from now? Yeah, like, it'll turn out that there's some, some... some just god awful KCI style deck that uses this as the KCI and somehow that, gets that was it. like that was exactly my read. I looked at this and I'm like, the relevant this is just gonna be played as like a six mana KCI type card that reduces everything by two because there's nothing like that. Yeah, like is this uh, is this a blasting right station enabler? It's just it's just gonna be miserable to play against. Like some some kind of eggs style yeah. strategy. They're, they're already doing that kind of stuff with uh, another cost reducer. I, I don't know if six mana is just like where you want to be for that kind of card in modern. Well, you but, said, but assumably you're doing that with Tron components, right? Like you're assembling Tron to cast them on turn three or whatever. Maybe. I don't know if you really want Tron in that kind of, that kind of modern deck. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. I'm actually more excited about this card than legacy and vintage, or I mean, I don't really know about vintage. Never mind, I shouldn't say things like that. <laughs> but like, you can be excited about it. You just don't have a great reason. To yeah, be. yeah. In, in legacy, getting six colorless mana on turn three is like pretty trivial. The colorless spells you cast cost two less to cast mode is like way better when you have things like thought not Seer or whatever to play. And then, like grinding games out is like randomly better in legacy than in modern. So there's that. But uh, as you said, legacy doesn't matter. So. All right, so since we're, this, this is at $9 for a rare 40 for foils, again, I want to see what? that come way, way that's down. so expensive. Yeah, it's a $40 foil rare that may not wow. see any play in standard. Okay, yeah, no, never mind. <laughs> Let's see what it comes down to this weekend. It's going to drop like yeah. a stone. Yeah. All right, so there's one other uh, combo that people have been talking about that I want to debunk since we've got the chance. What about Karn the Great Creator in Tron? Uh, going to get Microsynth Lattice out of the sideboard without taking up any main deck, deck slots. Does that ring your bell? What? <laughs> so no, that Car- Car- that does, I, I know, I know. That doesn't sound very good to me, no. <laughs> <laughs> T- turning off all their all their lands doesn't do anything for you? I do think Karn the Great Creator is a good card. I don't think that's why it's good, though. <laughs> okay. But do, do, do you see Tron ever wanting to run it? I don't think I don't think it's a card for Tron. No, I think it's like a card for like vintage or also for like 
modern uh, artifact-based prison decks. Okay. Being able to access, like, a, I don't know, like, Jester's Cap out of your sideboard or something might be a really good thing for War Prison. <laughs> also, it can win Jester's you the game. Cap get, get cast on camera in 2019. <laughs> well, that, that deck does play that card, and it's, like, very good in it. It's, it's wild. I... Yeah, I just say I have an important thing to say. Jester's Cap is legal yeah, in my It's legal, so, it's and, and it, it is played in that deck, and it is good. So is the deal that they recurse <laughs> it, like they're just doing it over and over again? Uh, you can do that, but also very frequently there's just three cards in your opponent's deck that you care about after you have like a, an instant bridge in play or something. And then if you can bridge, sorry, if you can Jester's Cap them, then you win. Crazy. Okay. Um, so is there anything we missed like anything for modern that like caught your attention that we haven't talked about? Uh, not really off the top of my head. <laughs> okay, it, it it didn't strike me as a set that was jam packed with modern playables. There's a bunch of like small things, like uh, like Dovin's Fido is like better than Negate in a lot of decks, but like a bunch of that kind of stuff doesn't really matter. I think it, it has. It seems like it has a lot of fascinating components that are like oh this might be able to get there. Like Ugin might might work if somebody figures it out, but there's no. Or and like I was the name the Dreadhorde guy that casts instants and sorceries is like this is curious. I wonder if you can set something up with it. But there's no like ass- assassin's trophy. Yeah, exactly. where it's just like oh yeah, the rate on this for the power level is nuts, and it's actually better in modern than it is in standard because of you know X Y Z. Yeah, there's a bunch of very small stuff like Liliana's Triumph and stuff like oh there's Diabolic Edict in modern now, or like ah maybe Finale of Devastation is good, but it's yeah there's no slam dunks for sure. All right, so we're going to transition and put over, try to reach back in time and put on your commander cap. Oh. Uh, we're going to go through some of these commander cards, evaluating from the Timmy perspective. So first on the list is a card that I almost put on the modern list to get have it shot down. Ashiok Dream Render, one blue, black, blue, black, five loyalty um, for a three-mana Planeswalker. Spells and abilities your opponent's control can't cause their controller to search their library. No fetch lands for you, no demonic tutor, no fetchy fetchy. Minus one, target player puts the top four cards of their library into the graveyard, then exile each opponent's graveyard. Graveyards get abused a lot in Commander. Decks like Maldrotha rely on it. Getting rid of all of them at once is pretty nasty. Based on everything that I know about Commander, which as you know is not very much, this seems like an absolute slam dunk and uh, like an absolute format staple. Yeah, I mean, it attracts the Planeswalkers is my go-to deck in, in Commander, and I will certainly be running an Ashiok because it's one of the things I found with previously available Planeswalkers is that under into a doubling season, you tend to run a bunch of the Planeswalkers that just win you the game on the spot that can like set off their ultimates uh, under mm-hmm. a doubling season. But there's not a lot of Planeswalkers that had um, disruptive elements. That where in the mid game, if you don't have haven't found your doubling season yet or the equivalent, um, where you can be causing trouble for other people's strategies, and so you end up at the you know the mercy of whatever combo is going off around you. And Ashiok does a lot of work in that regard, just shutting down a lot of like combo enabling um, activity. This could honestly also be playable in modern, if for some reason you wanted like the. Let's say you had a deck where a planeswalker that was a like a constant shadow of doubt that also milled your opponent out that also <laughs> um, uh, was graveyard hit was good. This would be it. It's right. powerful. It's a powerful card. Like it just needs to be good, and a commander sure as hell is good. Yeah. 
So, I mean, I, th- I was thinking about like how Fulminator Mage, you don't really see a lot of them these days in modern. Um, and whether in that, if that was ever <laughs> useful, would Ashiok be good enough against graveyards to make up for only dealing with the fetch lands? I don't think so, no. Okay. So, anyway, he's $1.50 as an uncommon planeswalker. Foils are 15 um, that sounds high for an uncommon foil that's only going to get played in Commander, so wake me up when those get down to 2 or $3. Yeah. Um, how about how about this ridiculous card that reminds me of playing Magic in the 90s? Bolus's Citadel. This card's kind of absurd. Uh, three and three black. Uh, enchantment. Is it a legendary enchantment? Legendary artifact. Legendary artifact, right. So I can't find it in my list here. <laughs> so let me just bring up the text. Here, I got you. Hit you it. may look at the top card of your library anytime. You may play. <laughs> I'm sorry. You may play I like the it, top I like card it. No, of your I library. It. Do it. <laughs> if you cast a spell this way, pay life equal to its converted mana cost rather than pay its mana cost. Top. Sacrifice 10 non-land permanents. <laughs> Each opponent loses 10 life. That's a standard modern ability. Sack 10 non-land permanents. Yeah, no, no big deal. Just 10 non-land permanents. Don't worry about it. All right. So, <laughs> or, or one army, which is somehow one permanent. <laughs> In a format where you start with 40 life, um, this is a nasty piece of work. And in decks like Aloro that gain a lot of life, or Kambal, Console of Allocation, where every time they cast a non-creature spell, you're you're gaining life. Um, there's a bunch of different commanders that mess with their life total and aim high. This thing lets you cast so many spells. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, this card's very powerful. I had to read it like three times when it was spoiled, and then came to the quick conclusion that I had no idea how to evaluate it, and that it was either... <laughs> unbeatable or unplayable and no in between do you have any any sense of this ever showing up in standard i think it's very unlikely that there are the pieces necessary to make this card good in standard there was that there was the other one from earlier in the year who's who's already faded from memory that i think it had a, a similar reception the yeah. lit the lich related one that never got anywhere either yeah, Ledger's Mastery. It, it yeah. strikes me a lot as that kind of card. They they print these a lot, and they're usually not very good. Fair. But so I, is... I can't imagine that being able to abuse the life total thing in, in EDH is actually very good. Uh, it $4 for a rare, $8 for foils. I want to see it come down. Um, <laughs> casualties of War. This will be an EDH staple from now till the end of eternity. This card is absolutely ridiculous in that format. Two double black, double green. Choose one or more. Destroy an artifact, destroy a creature, destroy an enchantment, destroy a land, destroy a planeswalker. That's so many things. That's a lot of things. And the, it's a and five the, for one. And the fact that unlike Decimate, you don't have to have all four targets present. <laughs> you just pick and choose. <laughs> Means yeah. you're going to see a lot of this getting played. Um, this, this card is nice. Yeah, too expensive for standard, for the most Probably. part. Maybe a one of somewhere at some point. Maybe not. I'd rather cast Liliana Dreadhorde General with the sure. beautiful uh, Japanese promo art. Ooh, yeah. <sighs> the, Ama- the Amano art. Ooh, Travis, Travis is going to order. 
Travis is going to pay the full 300 for the Japanese foil Lomano. Hell yeah. Oh man, if I was one of those idiots who had made a ton of money on YouTube and didn't know what to do with myself, I would buy them and then I would burn them on camera and just <laughs> Oh, it would be good. Oh, it would feel so good. I'm just so, excited that there are non-foil promos. Yeah, it's cool. I that's sick. I yeah. love alt art and I hate playing with foils, so So Casualties nice. War, a dollar right now, five dollar foils, that's gonna come down on the back of no standard play, and when they get down real low, then I'll look at them as a buy list play. Um, D Spark. This is uh, has that similar like timeless utility. This lets you exile any permanent uh, four or greater, I believe. Probably going to see some standard play too. I would think. Doesn't Esper Control slot this in neatly? Uh, D Spark four, four or greater is a little bit of an ask for standard. Certainly, it will. I don't know. I'm pretty sure the card will see play at some point. I would not add it to Esper Control at the moment. Okay. Uh, in Commander, on the other hand, it's going to be as ubiquitous as something like Assassin's Trophy because there's tons of targets there. Um, yeah. And now they have the white-black decks can run this, Anguish Unmaking, and uh, whatever the one was from Khan's Block, Utter End, um, and just have like ridiculous amounts of exile uh, pinpoint targeting. Uh, currently, however, it's an uncommon 50 cents, $5 for foils. That's got to come down. Um, yeah, seems expensive. Evolution Sage is another pretty exciting uncommon for EDH that probably won't get there anywhere else. That's the 2-2 two, two for 3, I believe, or 2-3 three for 3 that proliferates whenever you play a land. I'm not so sure about that one, but that's also... I'm not knowledgeable about... Not, I'm not knowledgeable enough about the EDH format to really give a, a good that one. Card that card is... That card is pretty awesome. Uh, I mean, you know, it's not hard to get land drops, especially in decks that want to abuse it, like get Rogger, Wind Grace, yeah. and then, and then, even if you're not set up to go ham on it, where you're just doing it constantly, um, having this in play and firing like one creeping, cro- uh, creeping corrosion, creeping Renaissance, or things like that, um, or uh, the other Nissa spell that brings all your lands back from the Splendid Reclamation can get trigger a ton of proliferate stuff. So even if you're just playing a Planeswalker-centric deck, this seems reasonable because it's just going to give you an extra proliferate trigger or two every single turn as it is, um, especially with fetch lands. Yeah, your fetch lands so, are doubling your triggers, so that's pretty nasty. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. And the thing is, is like proliferate doesn't go into every EDH deck. I know there was something spoiled this season that people got all wound up about proliferate. Uh, it was a land. People are like, oh my god, this is an EDH staple. It's like, well, a lot of EDH decks actually don't care about proliferate, but the decks that do really do, and this is going to fit into those. Six bucks for foils is a little rough for me, especially as an uncommon, but I will tell you, if we get down to a dollar or two, that's definitely worth considering. Yeah. So the next one is the most hyped commander um, of the set, for sure. People, it's driven at least 20 terrible cards to spike in foil. <laughs> uh, and then the last couple, of, like Defiant Strike foils, guess what they're worth now, Dan? $20. <laughs> well, it was a, a common, so. <laughs> but foil Defiant Strike was about, it was about $5. <laughs> that's, it's not fair. You can see the spreadsheet. <laughs> $50. We're getting there. So Feather the Redeemed, red, white, white, 3-4 flyer. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell that targets a creature you control, exile that card instead of putting it into your graveyard as it resolves. If you do, return it to your hand at the beginning of the next end step. So that happens on every player's turn. So if you have Feather in play and a Defiant Strike in hand, 
you can do it on everybody's turn for one mana and draw a card and just keep getting the spell back forever until they kill Feather. Emphasis on until they kill Feather. Yeah. In Um, in response to the first one. (laughs) Well, a lot of the the white cantrips that you're running in this are protecting Feather. So the whole thing is here you just pile on with the like shelters and what have you. Um, And bottom line is this is probably like the best Boros commander we've ever had and a lot of people are going to build it. Um, feather foils are going for $25. That's way too high. So, and generally when you're a commander is very popular, you don't really want to be targeting the commander. You want to be targeting like Sunforger when it was a dollar and like riding it up to 10, which has already happened. So a lot of the feather math is behind us. Um, so yeah, feather's probably going to get her six weeks in the sun and then people will move on. Uh, Karn, the great creator. We talked about this for modern uh, $10 for non-foils, $45 for foils. That's crazy high. Uh, seems like a good card in the format. It so slots high. into... Yeah, it's so high. Uh, it slots into Brea and a bunch of other uh, artifact-centric decks in the format, but I need to see these prices come down from their crazy hype peak. Um, Travis, Karn's Bastion was the land you were talking about that proliferates for four. Um, currently at uh, $5 for non-foils and 20 for foils. Also super high. Um, all of these commander cards are going to get that aren't going to be playable in standard will collapse completely in early <laughs> summer, or like postmodern horizon spoilers, and we'll get a shot at them on some some kind of ten percent off sale or something to load up for the, like the two year buy list play. Um, Kiora Behemoth Beckoner is a pretty sweet card. It's only an uncommon planeswalker, so financially not super exciting. But the fact that it untaps any permanent and comes into play with seven loyalty for three mana. And whenever a creature with power four or greater enters the battlefield under your control, you draw a card. Those are that is a really nice set of abilities on a seven loyalty planeswalker. That card seems very nice to me. Yeah, it's going to do a lot of work. Like Gaia's Cradle, untap my Gaia's Cradle. That's just fine. And then like it's probably probably decent. Yeah, Crater Hoof, Behemoth off that, and then draw a card. <laughs> That'll do. Um, Liliana Dreadhorde General. Uh, Excellent in standard, probably will never see play in modern, but will absolutely be an awesome long-term spec for Commander if her foils ever come down low enough. So the ideal here would be that she collapses in standard, doesn't see play. Um, The foils collapse, and then you pick them up for the long-term Commander play. But if she pulls an Elspeth Sun's Champion, then that will never happen. And and Um, if it tanks in standard, then certainly buying up uh, Yoshitaka Amano foil Japanese Dreadhorde Generals (sighs) is good. Very good. So so I think that we we did some math on those. Like, it's 50-50. You get get a Planeswalker in every pack. It's 50-50 that they're alt art. And then you've got the usual foil rarity. So compared to um, the English version of the card, English foils... I calculate that they're probably something like five times or more, more rare, maybe up to 10 times as more. <laughs> so <laughs> that foil could end up being a two or $300 foil a couple of years out. Right. That's rough. A couple of years out. Isn't that foil two or $300 off the bat? We'll see. We'll see. We, we, we saw quotes from a peer, uh, a vendor we know that he was selling non-foil sets for $300 a set. For the thirty six, and it was twelve hundred. Yeah, and what was it twelve hundred or something for a foil set? I think I think he said no. I think it was just twelve hundred for four sets or something. He he posted again. Oh, did he? 
today, I think. Today or yesterday, yeah. Must have been today because I would have mentioned it last night. So he mentioned it today. The, the crazy thing about that is people that have boxes at the normal cost, like normal dealer cost in Japan of whatever it is, like 75 or 80 US, can crack those and basically get double value. They can sell all the normal cards from from the box domestically in Japan and then just flip the play sets of the hard-to-find Planeswalkers overseas. And it's like opening two boxes at once. I just can't so, imagine how expensive those, uh, like the, the alternate Liliana sleeves are going to be from the special campaign they're running. Oh, I haven't even heard about that yet. Okay, so they're running a campaign, like a limited edition campaign at stores in Japan, where every time you spend the equivalent of about $10, you get a stamp. Every stamp gets you like a a printout of the Yoshitaka Amano Liliana art. And then if you get 10 stamps, so if you spend $100 loosely, you get a pack of sleeves, a 50 count pack of sleeves of that art. (laughs) <laughs> 50 count <laughs> <laughs> so then you have to go send another hundred dollars like maybe another participating store or whatever uh get another 10 stamps get another 50 and there you go cool so two hundred dollars to get a 100 alt art or like promo sleeves yeah I, by, I can't by the, imagine by the, how hard to find and how expensive those are going to be. By one of the most important markets. anime artists of all time. Yeah, and so, they have like a huge collector's but, culture there as well, right? Uh, so yeah. so few of those yeah. are going to make it through to our market, and I want them. Ed's, <laughs> so, uh, Ed's tweet was, um, a set of one of the all arts for 350 and four of each for 1200 Yeah, that's what I thought. It was four four sets for 1200 He has He hasn't even approximated the foils yet the um the i think foil sets are going to be near impossible to assemble with the without truly like harayuya plus opening levels um and the best spec out of everything we've talked about today is almost certainly the japanese boxes if you can get them at normal cost because there's a decent chance those boxes end up being two to three hundred dollars a couple of years out which would be the best return you've ever seen on a standard on a standard box since like innistrad or something also, everyone who plays Magic is a huge weeb. Yeah. There's That's essentially what ex- I said last traps. night. <laughs> so. Yes, except me. Exactly. Which gives me the right <laughs> to make that claim. All right. So let's wrap up our commander picks here. Liliana, Dreadhorde General. Awesome. Neheb, Dreadhorde Champion. Solid. Um, relatively cheap. Not going to be a major thing in the format, but does give Red some nice uh, tools. Nisa, who shakes the world, is much more exciting here. And I want to see the foils come down under... I don't know, probably under four or something for a two-year turnaround. Niv-Mizzet Reborn is probably going to be the second or third most important commander in this set, but I don't think people are very excited about the card. So, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to drive a plethora of new dragon decks in the format. Uh, we talked a little bit about Rolesque Apex Hybrid and how that does look very good here. So, I hope that Dan's wrong about it in Standard. It collapses completely, <laughs> and the foils get dirt cheap because they would be lovely to pick up for commander. Um, Soul Diviner is the fairly, like, inauspicious, uh, I think, I think it's a rare, blue-black, and you tap it, you get to take a counter off something and draw a card. Pretty sure I'm supposed to slot that into Attracts the Planeswalkers and just get a little bit of extra card draw. Um, but it is vulnerable to Wrath-type effects, which I tend to run a lot of, so maybe not. Um, Spark Double only copying my stuff is not all that great but the the potential to 
copy one of my best planeswalkers and give it an extra loyalty counter is probably good enough to make it into a tracks of planeswalkers. So I'm assuming standard will not make use of the card. It will collapse utterly and mid late summer might look into a long long term buy list play. Similar kind of thing for Vivian's Arcbow. I'm assuming you have no designs on that for standard, Daniel. Correct. All right. I think so, this card sucks. Yeah. So on that base <laughs> in Commander it's totally fine because it can dig deep in a format with much more mana available and a slower clock and can go get cool things and it's got nice art. So the foils will probably get somewhere eventually, but currently the foils are thirteen dollars, so hard pass for now. Um, if you had to pick one card out of standard and modern, Daniel, to wrap things up, is Roalesque your pick for most undervalued card in standard still? I would say yes, just because it has the price point of an utterly, completely unhyped card. Got it. And yet seems actually good, as okay. opposed to a lot of this other stuff, which is like either overhyped or bad. <laughs> so, right. yeah. Okay. That would be my and then and then in modern, is there anything on this list that you think is undervalued at current prices? Um it's there is a possibility that Finale of Promise ends up being like very I'm assuming that's the green one, sorry. <laughs> uh, ends up uh, being very de- devastation, oddly enough, is the green one. Oh. Well, okay, whatever. Still still applies. Um the metagame shifts in such a way that with like the new London Mulligan that uh like the devoted true combo deck is busted and needs four copies of finale of devastation in it. And then all of a sudden that becomes a very expensive card. But I would say overall, this set isn't really that exciting for modern and therefore I'm not missing very much. Who is this set exciting for? Uh, People who like planeswalkers and, and commander players. and Yeah. I think it's, it's very almost... exciting for casual magic and post rotation standard mostly. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. This seems like it's geared for a casual deck or like casual players, right? Like it's not letting up modern. The EDH stuff is okay, but it's not a huge deal. Standard, we don't know yet. It seems like the casual players, the little planeswalkers are getting paid here. There's a lot of garbage but, planeswalkers. They're just worse than other cards that already exist in standard, but are still good enough to make your fun deck, you know? See, a lot of the quirky mm-hmm. themes here make a lot of sense, though, when you consider that we're like three or four weeks out from spoilers for Modern Horizons. Yeah, because they're about to jump, drop a pile of modern cards, and the fact that they announced that that, that next pro tour is also modern <laughs> suggests they are expecting that to be of interest, which it leads me to believe that to Horizons it matters. Yeah, yeah, that Horizons really like is going to be chock full of playables. Um, I mean, damn well better be. What's the point otherwise? <laughs> I mean, especially be- at, like the two hundred and forty dollar price point. That'd be so sick to me. Just release like a master set that just sucks. Oh, wait, they already did that. It's <laughs> iconic masters. <laughs> Classic Watsy joke. You got him, Dan. You got him. All right. So uh, thanks very much, Daniel Fournier, for helping us debunk uh, many of the overhyped cards for War of the Spark and identify some of the um, cards that may find a role in standard, may be more interesting in rotation at the fall, and may one day find a home in modern and EDH. Um, hopefully we'll have you back next time, Dan, if you can make the time for us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. I was really glad you were able to make it, Dan. I'm, uh, I was very pleased. And uh, I, I hope that you'll get back to me on my 
magic politic podcast idea <laughs> that we talked about earlier. I, I would do it. I'm not the <laughs> I, I'm not the the missing link there, let me tell you. All right. Okay. <laughs> That's a wrap for this week, folks. Where can people find you online, Travis? Uh, I'm on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, and I do the Watchtower series every Monday over at mtgprice.com. You guys can find me on Twitter at mtgcritic, as well as via my weekly articles on mtgprice.com. I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by CoolStuffInc.com, where you can find all sorts of nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. And that brings us to the end of episode 165. We were overjoyed to have you with us, Dan. Uh, James, it's been a pleasure as always. And I will see you again next week. Uh, we have one last uh, order of business. Our $25 gift certificate winner from Cool Stuff oh. Inc. is Mr. Ha this week. Thank you for hanging out in the uh, Discord channels, um, setting yourself up to get that lovely prize. Thank you, Travis. Thank you, Daniel. We'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. <laughs>